It's a five-star podcast. Because we do it. What's up, everybody? Welcome back. It is episode 70 of the What's Real podcast. I am your host, Ed Demko, along with my tag team championship partner in podcasting, the Jay himself, Jared Bajoris. What's going on, the Jay? It might not be episode 69, hate you up, but the Jay is still pumped up as ever. I can't believe we're hitting the 70s here with episode 70. So crazy stuff, man, but as pumped as I can be, as I should be here at the outset of the show. I know once again, as always here on What's Real in Our World, we have a ton of shit to go through and cover. Let the adventure begin. Hate you up for episode seven zero. Absolutely. We have for you this week, we have a Booker T biography straight from A&E that we're going to take a look at. Uh, We are going to go down to the last drive-in once again with our buddy Joe Bob Briggs for another double feature, this time with Ginger Snaps from 2000. And a brand new movie from 2020, you could say, but it was a premiere on Shutter, a movie called Fried Berry. So we got both of those on Joe Bob's last drive-in this week. So we're going to take a look at those. And that's not it as far as the wrestling goes. The season premiere of Dark Side of the Ring uh, with its debut episode all about none other than Brian Pillman. So that's going to be uh, fun to look at and sad to look at, of course. Uh, we're going to have goofs as usual and much, much more. So let's get into it. The J. Let's do it. Uh, let's start out. The, let's start out this week with some sneakers, if you will. Uh, over the next week, we have some sneaker releases uh, that me and the J like to take a look at. And of course, you know, there's good and bad with everything. But uh, these are the sneaker releases for the week of May 10th through the 16th. So the J, I got to ask. First up, we talked about these before. Um, they're probably going to be impossible to get. But the uh, the Stingwater brings their eccentric style to the Nike SB Dunk Low. A lot of people are calling these the Stingrays. Um, kind of crazy looking, kind of cool looking. But it's definitely going to be a pass for me. I like them. They're the situation of if I do get my hands on, which, as you mentioned, I highly doubt, uh, I might go for them just for that, you know, throw out the Hail Mary there for those. And I definitely would resell these. Okay. That would be my plan, too. That's that's a good call uh, because they'll definitely be worthwhile doing that way. Yeah. The one released this week, though, that I'm kind of excited about, I'm probably still not going to get them, but I really like these. I want to just see these in person. The quilted Air Jordan 35s, we've talked about these on the show a bunch, but like the more pictures I see of these, the more and more I like them. These would be ones that I've said it on our sneaker breakdowns. If I had the hypothetical expendable income, I would definitely be trying to get a pair of these. I think these are really cool. They're a colorway that I like, that I have a few pairs uh, in my collection of this colorway. And as I mentioned to you, if I did uh, hypothetically purchase these, hey, you know, this would actually be my third pair of 35s. I, I like the 35s. Or I'm sorry, because I have the 34s and the 35s. So this would be my second pair of 35s with uh, the Warriors. But nonetheless, okay. I, I like the newer Jordans, you know, uh, having a pair of the 34s and then getting the 35 Warriors that we broke down before. I, 
I love. They're sick. And uh, yeah, these are just really well put together with the quilted part and the materials and everything. These are definitely sick. Uh, these are going to be a pass for me, but what do you think about the Air Jordan 1 KO in the Chicago colorway? Oh, I think they're ridiculous. These are, you know, talk about classics and traditional. I mean, these are the Jordan 1s, KO, Chicago's for a reason. So, and again, if we were multi-multi-millionaires, hey, you know, we'd probably be getting everyone that we have any semblance of an interest in, which would be the case here. But uh, but yeah, as, as I've said on the past episodes, Right now, the Jays are kind of a, a standstill uh, with my sneakerhead budget currently. So, you know, we'll see. But yeah, these are these are just classics. Also, we have a uh, Slam Jam New Balance nine ninety one in like a black, white, and gray colorway. I actually like these a lot. Um, again, uh, probably won't be getting them, but there is a better chance of me getting these than anything else because, like, I might be able to get these at another time as opposed to most of the things that we're talking about on here. Yeah, these are really, let's use the word sleek, like they have on sneaker news here. Hey, yeah, exactly. I like that. There you go. Yeah, very sleek uh, new balances. Dude, I wanted to get your opinion on these, okay? Did you see the uh, the, Air, the, the Air Jordan 5 lows that they're coming out? Uh, they're black and gold. Yeah, the Wings program these, ones. Yes, these are terrible. I do, this is a shoe that just doesn't look right at all on a low to me. And I think it's because it, like when you think of the Air Jordan five, the probably the most memorable or the most prominent thing about it is the tongue. And these don't have that because yeah. <laughs> they're lows. So they're just I, I don't like the design of these. I know they try and do all the all the Jordans and lows at some point, uh, but these are a big miss for me. These, these are a good example to bring this up, hey, Ed, with these particular shoes is, and you'll get this as a sneakerhead and week to week falling, or I should say basically day to day or every other day, checking the sneaker app and things like that on the upcoming releases and what you maybe really want. And you're like, man, I don't have a chance of getting these or you don't have them in the budget, but then you, you like are in love with them. So you're going to go for them anyway. These are the releases that you're like, whew, you know, you kind of br brush the yeah. sweat off your brow. Like, I'm not into these, so I don't even have to worry about it, which, again, is just such a sneakerhead thing. But these are a good example to bring that up because I thought the same thing. I'm like, man, this is another big release that isn't up my alley, so I don't have to worry about sweating it. But immediately, though, we run into what I like to call like a, a sneakerhead problem for me. Okay, check this out. Did you see the... Uh, the Reebok question low green. Toes. Yeah. So these are, uh, according to sneaker news, like a nod to a Rajon Rondo player exclusive. Okay. Now me personally, and I think I've talked to you about this just off air randomly when we were talking about shoes at some point, I need a new pair of shoes where like green is kind of like the foundation of them. Yep. And that's, that's exactly what I'm talking about. So like, this is something that like I wouldn't plan on buying, and it comes out of nowhere because like you were saying, all the stuff that we generally like peruse online doesn't really include a whole lot of Reebok shit. So like Reebok will throw a curveball and you're like, fuck, I, now I kind of need these and I do kind of need these, but I got to probably hold off. Uh, but, you know, I, I could see myself like maybe dumb lucking my way into a pair of these at some point in the next month or so. I like these a lot. My question to you is, 
because I have no idea off the top of my head, what do you think the availability is going to be in comparison to the Nike it, releases? Yeah. I mean, probably easier to get than the Nike releases, but it's just, I don't know enough about what Reebok's currently doing. Like, do I need to go on their site and order these? That's what I mean. To a foot Locker and get these? Like, I don't know the answer to that. So that's part of my problem, I guess. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, I haven't, I haven't bought a pair of Reeboks in, in decades, literally. I mean, I have a couple pairs, but I just picked them up here and there on the cheap. So it wasn't there like for beaters kind of a deal. Yeah. Uh, but I like them. I mean, I'm not going to complain. Like, I I think that there's like every shoe company does some things right for the most part. Um, some of them I don't care for. But, you know, I, I think like real sneakerheads really have a little bit of everything in their collection at some point or have had everything in their collection at some point. So... It just is what it is. Uh, dude, I saw a review of these online. And this this is exactly why you don't watch, you know, like video reviews and shit on YouTube. Uh, even when they're by really good people. And I'm not knocking the videos. Uh, but the Air Jordan 1 Shadow 2.0. These are fucking awesome. I really want a pair of these. Because... Yeah. Because the thing is, man, if you don't if you don't score a pair of these at retail, like no joke, these are gonna be like four hundred plus. They're gonna be ridiculous. and that's a pro like so it's like they're really priced out of my range or what I'm willing to spend uh at that point. So like it gets a little bit ridiculous, but like I like these like a lot. Yeah, <laughs> like, these are nice dude, classic highs, that colorway we're talking about, like the Oakland Raiders, silver and black. Well, dude, Fresh. check this out. So so shout out to wear testers on YouTube. I didn't realize this, but the dude breaks it down really well. Like if you guys are interested in sneakers, check out wear testers on YouTube. Dude's amazing at what he does. Um, but these were apparently a planned OG colorway. Okay. So like, you know, whenever the Jordan one originally came out, right? Like, you know, there's a bunch of OG colorways and not just bulls colors. Like they had a bunch of, that, like that at the for the time period, Jordan ones were crazy. Like they didn't put out shoes in that many colorways, um, but they did with the ones. But there are photos of this very Jordan one back then that never came out. And Nike's not really talking about it or anything, but this is kind of like a re-release of a planned OG colorway. And yeah, I thought they that like was developed kind of cool developed a prototype of them and for some yes, reason or another which have never been, released them yes they were photographed some you know what i mean like that's a that's definitively something that's happened so right i think that's really cool about the history of the sneaker kind of a deal and it's crazy to think that this was a planned colorway in 85 that never came out and it's finally coming out in 2021 that's also pretty cool um i don't expect anything special for it or anything because like i said nike isn't really uh, touting that, but like, I just thought that was a neat little tidbit that I learned from watching over on wear testers. So I was like, that's pretty cool. And it makes me like it even more. Yeah. Really cool. And these come out this weekend, May 15th, which would be Saturday. Yeah. And you know, the Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Exactly. That's what it is. Jordan, those are brutal. Those are so, the big ones. Yep. And that's going to be a problem, I think, but I don't know who knows. I, I'm probably not going to have the extra cash to go for them anyways at this point. Um, but you know, while we're at it, the J, what about a little bit of a sneaker check? It wasn't too bad of a day out today. Uh, do you have anything special on foot? What's real sneaker check? 
Oh yeah, hey, you know, because I had a couple to run that were with what I do vacant kind of situations. Basically, I wasn't meeting anybody or anything like that. So it's not like I go to my workplace, uh, you know, work areas dressed like a bum, but you know, it's like, obviously I'm not seeing anybody, so I don't have to worry about it. And I didn't have to worry about any rain. So to throw it at you, hey, I did have a decent pair on. I've referenced these ones before. These are the Snug Fit, one of the most comfortable pairs that I've owned. They are the Rock Deltas, uh, the Under Armors. They were the first uh, Rock release of sneakers that he ever did. The the Delta okay. ones and they're yeah, black and gold. Like those. And I always uh, rave to you about them. They're super comfortable. They like I always say they seem to suction on the foot. Uh, but yeah, I, I slapped those on today with a little outfit because as we say, it's the little things in life. And when you don't get to really have a social life for the last year and a half of a pandemic, you like get, get dressed up somewhat to, to run errands. Yeah, definitely. I do the same shit. So. Yeah. And dude, I, okay. So this kind of ties into mine this week. Uh, and it's just, I, I haven't done this in forever, but so I have a pair of Air Max 90s, right? They're orange and laser blue with black and shit. Like, I love these shoes. They're yeah, I think I've seen those. Yeah. And uh, so it just got to the point where I noticed, like, one of the last few times that I wore them that they needed cleaned one. And they had, like, a couple black marks on the fucking shoestrings. And they're white shoestrings. So I'm like, fuck. I got so annoyed by it because I kept forgetting about cleaning them that the last time that I wore them and noticed it, I literally got home, took them off, and like ripped the shoestrings out. So it's like, yeah, you're next time you pull it's getting done. Out, you're gonna remember, <laughs> like so. Uh, so I pulled them aside with the idea that I would clean them and shit, and I just didn't get to it. Like I had a bunch of shit. This was like weeks ago, where, where like crazy shit was going on. I was just super busy, so uh, I got around to it last night. I was like, fuck, finally, I'm gonna clean these up, clean the shoestrings, everything, which I did. I basically had to hang the shoestrings to dry them and everything, the whole deal. And then I laced them up this morning and wore them today. So I was kind of happy about that. And, uh, nice. It's nice. It's nice to get like a pair that gets a lot of wear out of your rotation back into the rotation because you start noticing that shit. Like, you know, depending on what you wear and how you wear it. Like if you take a pair randomly out of your rotation, sometimes you're like, it limits what you could wear. And it's like, fuck, I like to wear those with this. So I'm not going to wear that now. I might as well just wait till I have those again. Like, it's just a stupid thing that like is basically just OCD back. You know what I'm saying? So uh, just having those back in my rotation is is a solid thing at this point. So that's it this week for our sneaker check. It felt good to kind of get back into that because I felt like the last few weeks we haven't really, even though we've been doing a lot of sneaker stuff, we haven't been able to do the sneaker check as usual. So uh, that's good. Hopefully we can do those for, you know, we can get on a pretty good streak of those with the weather, uh, hopefully, because, you know, it's May and we still have the heat on and shit. So it's weird. Uh, but moving right along, dude, I thought this was pretty cool. Uh, I know that we talked about it earlier a little bit. Uh, it was from behind the steel curtain.com on SB Nation. It's called the Pittsburgh Steelers, a city, a team, a standard, a culture of success and tradition. Obviously, I'm not going to read the whole article, um, but it was pretty cool. It's a really, really cool article about the entire history of the Pittsburgh Steelers. But there is one part uh, about this that I did want to bring up because I thought it was great. And I think you'll agree with me on this one, the Jay. So 
whenever they were talking about the uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers, okay, it says, that, you know, they start talking about when they started winning the Super Bowls and everything like that. So just as a note, uh, beyond just being a good story, the Steelers have achieved frequent success, becoming the symbol of consistency in the entire league. Since 1969, the Steelers have only employed three head coaches, missed the playoffs just 18 times out of 48 seasons, and have had a remarkably low six total losing seasons. They've made the AFC Championship at least once every decade since the 1970s, made the Super Bowl at least once in the 1970s, 1990s, the 2000s, and the 2010s, and have won multiple rings in two separate decades. The Steelers are at or near the top of the league with six Super Bowl victories, eight Super Bowl appearances, and 36 postseason wins. The Steelers have one of the strongest arguments for being the most successful franchise in the history of the National Football League. So there you go. Yeah, such a cool article, and that, that really breaks it down. Uh, one one thing that I took from it uh, that was kind of a, a good little segment of, of this article, because it's not ridiculously long, but like you said, it's like to break down the whole thing, it is a decent-sized article overall. Uh, but it's it's basically saying, you know, just summing up what, what you were kind of breaking down with that portion, hey, Ed, and that is that it says that this is not to say the Steelers franchise is necessarily on, the only iconic aspect of Pittsburgh, you know, the city in general. Uh, but they, there are a few organizations in all of sports that embody a city the way the Steelers do. The Steelers are a truly special team. And, and that's what's cool. It's, it's like one of those things like, of course, you want to be proud of where you come from. And, and obviously there's nothing wrong with that. Like, I don't like taking that overboard. Like even like, you know, America, USA, you know, I'm, I'm extraordinarily proud of being American and of the, the USA, but I, I don't like, like throwing it in people's faces because as people, we should all be proud of like our roots. And my point is with this article, it kind of break breaks that down on why growing up in Pittsburgh and as you know, a Steeler fan from literally birth, basically, like since we're kids, we're we're Steeler yep. fans in Pittsburgh, you know. Um, and and just this article kind of brings that out, just reliving kind of coming up in Pittsburgh as a Steeler fan and everything that comes with that from memories with your family and friends. That's why it kind of goes beyond just like being a sport. And a lot of people that aren't from, you know, Pittsburgh specifically, but don't have this kind of uh, a sports team, you know, that they can cling on to and things like that. Wouldn't even understand something like that. Yeah, it's definitely different. That's for sure. Like I, I even know friends of mine that have kind of said as much, you know, like ones from other places and other like areas where other teams are like, like I've even had a few people basically. So like, I know a, a couple people I've met, for example, this is pretty weird. I went to a Steeler game one time where they played the Patriots and I randomly ran into some Patriot fans in the parking lot and like was just giving them a hard time. Like it was not serious at all, <laughs> but yeah. like I, I was talking to them and like, they even said like they're huge football fans and they're from Boston. But they were they were like, dude, this is amazing here. It's like kind of how the Red Sox are where we're from. And we wish football was kind of like that there. Um, so like that's a pretty good compliment from New England fans who are pretty that's a pretty successful franchise. I'll as much as I hate the team, I'll say that. Um, but you know, it's just different here. It really is. It's like, dude, if you like football and you appreciate football, I think Pittsburgh's kind of similar to like going to the Hall of Fame. 
Like if you go to the Hall of Fame, you're going there to appreciate football. If you're a football fan and you come to Pittsburgh, you'll appreciate just what you like. What you'll see from the city is is pretty cool. That goes into what this article touches on too, where I think the blue collar roots and why they're called the Steelers with the steel mills and the mm-hmm. whole tradition of the entire franchise, why it appeals to so many people. Because I, you know, there's a freaking Steeler bar in Rome, Italy, yeah. for crying out loud, like legit. Yeah. And and my my family is out in California, and my business partner and one of my best friends on Hermosa Beach, and there's just tons of specific like they are. They're quote unquote Steeler bars, but that's what they are. They are Steeler bars. They're they're bars establishments that are completely regaled with Steeler memorabilia and, you know, show the games out there during the season and stuff. And there's not many franchises, if any, that have that reach. Well, and two, and this is something that I've always kind of found cool about the Steelers, right? Is you see what a lot of teams all across football and I'm not, I'm talking about even college and stuff too. teams that have cheerleaders teams that have mascots, you know, like just goofy shit like that. Pittsburgh never really had any of that. I know they had the fucking Steely McBeam thing, but like that has been unofficial now for years. So somebody took him out that well, good. Cause it's, (laughs) Uh, but like, that's the thing. Like I've like, I've always enjoyed that. Like there's no gimmicks here. It's just about the fucking football. So, and I've always appreciated that. And, you know, I like the fact that that's kind of like our hometown team. So that's cool. Yeah, really, really good article. I'm glad he threw it my way and, you know, brought up kind of these little discussions uh, about our favorite football team. But that is not it when it comes to the world of football or the Pittsburgh Steelers. So let's get to the the story at hand. It looks like Tim Tebow is going to be sending a one-year deal with the Jacksonville Jaguars to play tight end. Uh, a lot of people are surprised by that. Uh, I think people are kind of blowing this a, a little out of proportion at this point because, like, let's be honest, they already have four tight ends on their roster. Um, I understand the point of bringing him in. He's friends with the coach in real life. It's his former college coach. Uh, Tebow is supposed to be a fucking madman when it comes to the gym and practice and shit like that. So I understand why that would be a benefit to have a guy like that in the room. Um, But calm down. He hasn't made the team yet. That's still a very, very massive long shot that he's going to make this team as a tight end. He hasn't played football in like eight years. Like, chill the fuck out. Timothy Richard Tebow is an American treasure, hate you or as I call him because we're personal friends, Timothy Dick Tebow. Uh, no, I mean, it, there's a lot of factors that go into it, but you took the words right out of my mouth off the bat. He has to make the team. I mean, anybody in the know, you see that right away because, again, this this is a lot of publicity and, and you see like the CBS Sports article headlines that they're signing former Tim Tebow to a deal and and like make a big deal out of it, but you don't read the fine print or if you're like us and in the know, you know that that's just them bringing him in to, to attempt to make the team. So you you hit again, you hit the nail on the head. It's a long shot. It's an interesting story. I mean, the guy hasn't played since what, 2015, six years. So, you know, we'll see, but yeah, it's, it's definitely a long shot at the end of the day. And of course it, uh, raises it, it raises some controversy, I guess, uh, because it's it's not just been uh, brought up by like one person. It's been multiple people, including Steelers uh, linebacker Devin Bush on Twitter. Uh, that it's weird that Tim Tebow somehow found his way 
back into the league um, after uh, missing so many years, yada, yada, yada. But Colin Kaepernick has somehow not found his way back into football. Um, it does kind of rise that question. I think the league open leaves itself open to shit like this forever at this point. It's the, how poorly they handled that whole thing. Um, it just is what it is. So, um, but, you know, I mean, yeah, I, it's a good point. I'm not going to argue with it at all because I think it's kind of goofy uh, that Tebow's getting the sh- Tebow's only getting this shot, by the way, because Urban Meyer's former college coach is the coach of the Jazz. It's connections. Exactly. It's, yep. yeah, it's, it's like anything else. Like you work somewhere and the fucking owner's dumbass it's who you know. brother-in-law's kid works with you because that's why. You know, like it, it just is what it is. And again, he hasn't made the team. So I'm not saying Kaepernick shouldn't get a shot. Uh, or shouldn't have gotten a shot up to this point, but they've kind of, the ship has kind of sailed on that anyways from a legal perspective too. But that, you know, you got to actually know what the hell's going on with all that stuff to understand it. But um, it does bring up a good point. I'll say that much. Yeah, for sure. And you, you nailed that too. Hey, Ed, the ship has sailed uh, at this point in time for Kaepernick. And I, I think it was just a matter of the fact that whether he was good enough or not, I, I feel like if he was, if he's like a burnout player that's going to make you a legitimate championship contender at quarterback, that that talent would supersede an owner taking a risk on him, even with all the baggage of the media and stuff. But I just don't think that his talent missing a couple years there and and things like that was going to catch up to the risk that an owner was going to have to take to take him on uh, in hiring Colin Kaepernick. I I think that was kind of the bottom line deal with that. But this does pose that question, how Tebow can still get a shot. I mean, it's definitely a, a good thing to bring up uh, when when this story broke. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it's something, like I said, man, the NFL opened themselves up to this years ago. And it's going to always be there. It's just one of those things. So I don't think that the league's really concerned with it, frankly, because it's it, the chatter is always going to be there at this point anyways. Um, they're trying to play nice with a lot of the stuff now. Um, so they're just going to just bulldoze right through it. I mean, that's fully what I'd expect from the NFL at this point. So, I mean, I don't know what people want or what people, you know, I mean, these are players in the league. So like, I don't know what they want. You know what I mean? It's like, I guess maybe you should bring that up at the next collective bargaining agreement. I don't know what to tell you otherwise. Like, you know, as a player in the league, I don't know what you could do about it. Like I really don't. Uh, there's nothing much. I mean, you know, a lot of players knelt in, you know, solidarity and things like that. It's it's the little things like that that, that you can do. But overall, yeah, it's going to take much more than, than that type of stuff to change the overall culture. And again, when you're talking a billion dollar industry and the owners and, and the owner meetings and everything that they talk about, discuss, you know, everything comes down to their decisions, you know, and then you throw in the, you know, our favorite commissioner, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a mess, man, but it is what it is. Uh, I, I read an article. I don't know if you caught it. Um, Des Bryant was kind of talking about it because he'd be a good guy to get it, their opinion because yeah, he, he was, was a player. Yeah, yeah, he wasn't in for a while and, you know, he, he came back and, uh, you know, he was mentioning a lot of this same kind of conversation that we were mentioning where it's just like, man, you haven't played an NFL game in damn near a de- decade and it's that simple. No hate, but you got to be kidding me is what Brian uh, 
said in the end. So, so yeah, we'll, we'll see. I mean, he has to be good enough to make an NFL team, no matter if he's friends with the head coach or not. So. Yep. Totally agree. And we'll have to see how that shakes out. Uh, this is some interesting news. Pitchfork.com released this uh, article this week with a new DMX album uh, titled Exodus has been announced. Uh, the first posthumous DMX album has been announced and it's called Exodus. It is going to be released May 28th via Def Jam. Swizz Beats executive produced and produced the new record. Um, this is going to be his first album with Def Jam since 2003's Grand Champ. And obviously DMX passed away April 9th at the age of 50. Um, this might be cool. Um, I know a lot of, you know, with especially with previous rappers and stuff, posthumous albums are kind of mediocre a lot of times. I have a feeling that some this has been worked on for quite some time anyways. And that a lot of the material is going to be treated with kid gloves. So they're probably going to really do a nice job with it, I would imagine. Uh, I'm definitely going to check it out. I'm somewhat interested in it. And so we'll have to see how that shakes out as of May 28th. Yeah, coming out May 28th, named after DMX's four-year-old son, Exodus Simmons. And another little tidbit note here, hey, Ed, his eight-year-old daughter, DMX's Sonova Hillman Jr., is also set to appear on the album and told NBC that she plans to release her own album soon. So uh, his eight-year-old about to release a rap album. But yeah, I mean, with Swiss Beats uh, on board, I've always liked X's stuff, even some of his like kind of off the beaten path, like more recent records. I think his last full album was Grand Champ, uh, yep. you know, all the way back in 03. So it's been a while. Uh, but, you know, we've seen uh, posthumous albums in the past, and some of them are pretty damn good. So, you know, as we always say, hey, you know, as entertainment junkies, we'll take it, especially if it's some good DMX. Yeah, even if the album's not good, if, as long as we can get a few good tracks off it, I'll be happy. Yeah, just a track or two to throw in a playlist. Yep, exactly. So... Dude, this news kind of came across uh, my eyes and made them cross and go back into my head, uh, <laughs> not really understanding what the fuck was going on. I saw this on HollywoodReporter.com. Cult horror movie Faces of Death getting 21st century reimagining via legendary films. Isa Mazay and Daniel Goldhaber, the team behind the 2018 psychological thriller Cam, will write and direct a take on the 1978 faux documentary. Uh, of course, if you guys are not familiar, Faces of Death is a uh, fake pseudo documentary uh, from the 70s, the late 70s, um, came out in 1980 in the United States, you know, like on a wider release. Um, and a lot of people thought that it was basically the equivalent of a snuff film, which isn't really what snuff is. Anyways, that's a whole other argument. But they thought that there was a lot of real death in this and there wasn't. Um, there's some real animal death in it. And there's some gross stuff, but ultimately it's uh, it's a ruse, basically. Um, so I have no idea um, how the fuck they're going to be able to do anything close to being what this original movie was like. Um, but, you know, I'm still I don't know, man. I'm still kind of wary anytime I hear anybody touching this. Like, I just feel like it's going to get called something else. The title's going to get changed. They're just going to make a whole different movie, yada, yada, yada. I'll believe it when I see it when it comes to this. Even just the descriptions of projects like this has changed over the last few decades. Like, you know, when they first were starting to become popular, they were called remakes. Then then they started 
describing them as reboots and now it's reimaginings. So, you know, that, that's just so broad that that could, they could do anything with it. And that could just be another thing where they're, they're taking the popularity of, of a license, the known entity yep. and IP and just running off of it, just calling it faces of death and, and just kind of doing what they want with it. Uh, you know, I'm sure it's going to be something along the lines of just uh, a faux documentary, you know, just kind of what the original was, but maybe we'll have more of a plot and they'll overthink it. I don't know. Yeah, I don't really know what to think of this. It's too vague. Um, I don't really know. <laughs> like, I mean, dude, how much money do you think there's to be made in making Faces of Death in 2021? Like, that's, I mean, that's when essentially the internet's become part of that, I guess. Um, yeah, these little, they go for these little cult niches to try to, you know, garner some sort of momentum. And that that's kind of what the article on the Hollywood reporter that you were mentioning about this was stating with legendary entertainment that's behind it, you know, they're coming off uh, a pretty big box office hit with Godzilla vs Kong, of course. And they're doing a bunch of these kind of reimagining or, or reboot franchises because it states in the article that the producing team behind this uh, faces a death is also behind a multi-platformed Buck Rogers reboot. That's what I mean. It just, it, it to me, it's like, is this a company interested in making movies or are they more interested in acquiring like cult licenses you know what i mean because that's the way it's yeah so i mean i don't know what this is going to end up being but like it certainly sounds like lousy uh off the jump so i i don't know what to think you know what i mean it's just it's goofy and we'll have to see how it turns out but i'm not expecting a whole lot I'll throw it at you. Hey, yeah. the the new plot revolves around a female moderator of a YouTube-like website whose job is to weed out offensive and violent content and who herself is recovering from a serious trauma. She stumbles across a group that is recreating the murders from the original film. But in the story primed for the digital age of online misinformation, the question is, are the murders real or fake? So I don't know. Reading that out loud, I'm like, I mean, that's an interesting take on it. Will that be good? Of course, is the question. But I don't know. Kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, I don't really understand that because it's like, what murders in the original? Like, so there's a serial killer that's like uh, holding a hostage and getting them shot. Like, you know what I mean? These were like newsreel yeah, things. This, these weren't like snuff films that somebody put out that's what i mean it's like so from the sound of that it makes me seem like no one ever watched the original movie um and they they wrote a story or a treatment around what they thought it was or what they like read about and just didn't understand it Um, where they missed the nicholas cage vehicle eight millimeter yeah because that's basically i mean it's all about a snuff film i mean that's fictional yeah, and that's not what Faces of Death is. It's not a right. Film. That's what I'm saying. So it's I, I don't know what the fuck this is. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like it's stupid. It's like I don't know. Now I kind of feel like it's like I, if the idea is this messy, the fucking movie's gonna be a mess, no matter yeah, how you slice it. Well, it's like, dude, I feel like I'm a teacher that just gave the kids the answers to the test, and then they took it, and everybody failed. And I'm like, well, yeah, I, right. I, I guess all you dummies didn't pay attention when I was like, the answers are A, C, B, A, C. You know what I mean? Like right before I started, yeah. I told you all the fucking answers and you all failed. Like, I don't know. It, it just is what it is. But moving on to the world of professional wrestling, 
Uh, and this leads me to a, a question I, I have for you, a surprise question, if you will, uh, the J, uh, coming up here about wrestling. But uh, on Raw this week, uh, and it's crazy to think how little that this happens, but Umberto Carrillo uh, match had his, it was stopped after he uh, had a legitimate injury. He was in a match with Sheamus, and uh, they were doing like a sunset flip powerbomb over the top rope. And they timed it weird, and he kind of powerbombed Sheamus onto his own leg. And, it, I mean, it wasn't really gruesome or anything like that, but he was injured to the point where he couldn't continue, and they stopped the match. And, dude, think about this, man. How many years of Raws have we watched pay-per-views, the whole thing? That doesn't happen very often at all. It's surprising how we, – we've always said that, man. But that's why the, the key word – before wrestler, when you're talking about a professional wrestler, is professional. Yeah. You know, that, they're professional wrestlers for a reason. They make very difficult shit look easy. But, yeah, we've said that a long time, man. It's amazing more things don't happen that, that do. And, and, of course, for a decade old, almost over century old, when you go back to the roots industry like this, with as crazy as the physicality is, um, they stack up, but yeah, to, to nowhere near where you might think. And uh, this was just bad timing. It's what can happen. You know, you're, it's a pretty big spot. He's doing a slingshot sunset flip powerbomb to the floor. Carrillo is a pretty small guy, especially in comparison to Sheamus is a fucking monster. So, you know, timing wasn't there and uh, it did look nasty because I, I heard about it. So I kind of was like flying through raw, like I do DVR and, and watched it. Like you said, it wasn't like the, you know, Dax injury or anything along those lines. Uh, but you could tell it, it definitely seemed legit. Absolutely. So hopefully Humberto Carrillo is not hurt too badly. Yeah. We, we wish you the, the best. Yeah. ASAP. So I uh, wanted to talk about this to Jay, because last week was AEW's blood and guts main event uh, on dynamite. Now there was a bunch of stuff here from this actually. Uh, first off, did you see the match itself? Yes. Okay. What'd you think of the match? I enjoyed it, man. It was entertaining. Uh, I like the the storyline and the physicality. That's what makes AEW stand out in comparison to the constant comparisons to WWE is the fact that they have no problem doing blood. Uh, the match is called Blood and Guts, so it made sense for this. Most of the guys in the match were were blading. Uh, I thought Sammy was was the MVP. Yeah, Sammy did really good in this good match. Call. Yep. And, um, and yeah, you know, the big spot at the end, a lot of people, you know, it's the classic mixed reviews on how wrestling fans felt about the finish, which, you know, spoiler alert, we're, we're kind of off the timing of AEW anyway, when, when we drop on Fridays, uh, but the, the kind of end of the match was MJF had Jericho basically trapped at the top of the cage and was threatening to throw him off if the inner circle didn't. Um, submit and, and quit the match, which they decided to do because they didn't want Jericho to have his career ended, basically. And then, of course, MJF being you know one of the top heels in the biz right now uh, threw him off anyway, and Jericho did a pretty big stunt that was pretty cool. See, I don't like the finish, though. I mean, I think he just should have thrown him off, period. So that would have made more sense to me. Um, like, it wasn't really, like, I didn't, I, I just thought that it made Sammy and them look stupid. Because, like, honestly, they the whole team could have stood underneath and be like, throw them. We'll fucking catch them. You know what I mean? Like, there's just, yeah. it's, it's a stupid way of ending the match. I don't know. I, I Otherwise, I liked it. Uh, MJF came off like a star. Uh, Sammy, definitely agree. MVP of the match. Uh, it was really good. 
Um, and I, dude, I was reading an article too that popped up today. Now it, it didn't really seem like a legitimate one, but they said like AEW top star will test the market on free agency. And it was about MJF and he's under contract until 2022. Um, but he said like, he doesn't want to leave AEW, but like, he's also a businessman and he's going to test the waters. So, you know, and they were saying like, well, that hasn't happened yet and everything, blah, 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 blah. So it leads me into my question this week that I wanted to ask you about. Who would be a smart bet to leave AEW for WWE? And I and I mean, not who's going to do it or, you know, whatever. Pick somebody from their roster that you've seen something from that maybe AEW isn't capitalizing on or something like that. Tell me somebody that if you could pluck out of AEW and put them in WWE that you think it would be a good like career move for them. Even See, that's a tough like, call. Even if it's like Jericho going back or, or Moxley or so, like yeah. anybody, like whoever. Well, because as we know, we talk about this within their own system at WWE with wrestlers starting off in NXT and getting called up. And a lot of the times a super hot NXT talent gets caught up, called up to Raw or SmackDown and they end up languishing and it, it screws up their career. I mean, look at Finn Balor, a top star for a pretty significant amount of time on their main roster, eventually being more comfortable to take the, you know, I don't even know if you would call it a demotion. We've talked about that. Just a more comfortable spot for him in NXT, you know, yeah. from being a legit WWE main eventer. That being said, that's what makes it kind of a tough call. Like who do I think on the AEW roster would flourish, you know, with Vince McMahon and company. And I'm going to throw this at you. Hey, uh, one of Pittsburgh owns companies, homegrown talent, shout out to IWC, one of our sponsors, the International Wrestling Cartel, and Wardlow. Because of his size, his look, um, I know he's not big on promos, but they could do something like, you know, fantasy booking. I I know Heyman's tied up in a main event uh, role with Roman Reigns, of course, but Wardlow and Heyman would be an interesting concept to kind of think about. Uh, But yeah, just to your question, I'd go with Wardlow. Hey, Okay, that's not a bad choice. I mean... I don't know if they would really like, I'm surprised at what AEW's managed to do with him. So, you know, I, I just don't know if he would get lost in the shuffle and plus he wouldn't be as big there. You know what I mean? He's a big guy in AEW yeah. and WWE is not. So that that's my immediate concern with something like that. Um, I don't know who I would pick. Um, Damn. Maybe somebody like Santana and Ortiz. I think would probably, as a tag team. Yep, I think they'd probably do a little bit better in WWE, especially if Vince got a hold of them and liked their work type thing. Um, you know, I dude, this is this might strike people as strange, but you know who I wouldn't care at all if they left and went back to WWE, and I think it would probably be a better thing for them in a lot of ways is Moxley. Who? Moxley. Yeah. I mean, I don't think he's been anything particularly special. I mean, I know he had a run with the title, like a considerable run with the title. But like, I don't I'm not going to rant and rave about anything that I've seen from him in AEW because I don't think it's been particularly great anything. And, and all the stuff he's been doing in Japan on the side, too. Yeah, I mean, dude, put it this way. Like, wouldn't it be kind of interesting to see maybe him go back to WWE as Dean Ambrose and face off with the current heel, uh, Roman Reigns? 
Uh, there's definitely a lot of interesting things they can do with him. The funny thing is, though, out of all the picks, just from my knowledge of how Moxley looks at the business and, and the WWE, he's one guy. And I know, of course, never say never in pro wrestling. It's definitely a possibility. But in my opinion, he's like the last guy I could see going back just, yeah. just because of how he left and, and just how he feels about that. You know, it's not even the company. I think it's just the machine and the way they do things. No, I think turn them off dude, just like punk, dude, you know, I dis just their process. I disagree. Totally. I see him going back definitely at some point um, because he can. Okay. Um, and the money's there. Like he's going to be, keep in mind too, if he would ever go back, he's going to go back uh, straight in, in a better position than he's ever been before. Cause it's like, dude, I'm a main eventer in another fucking company. I don't need you for shit. So if you want me to come over, I'm part-time. I'm only doing this. I'm doing like, you know what I mean? He's going to have more stroke than he did before for sure. No, that's a good call. I mean, this, this kind of brings up a, an interesting kind of conversation that, cause I was going to say this, like the top, say the top five guys that would be the biggest surprises coming back to WWE. Cause obviously number one, you would have CM Punk. I would think is still one. I agree. Then, then probably Moxley, then probably Jericho. And who would round out that top five? Because we, you know, growing up as wrestling fans in the eighties and nineties, even early two thousands, one of the funnest things about being a wrestling fan, especially at the peak of having ECW in the mix with WWF and WCW was always who's going to go Dude. where and the surprises they can do. Okay. And that's one of the biggest alleviations in the current product. You know what would be the biggest surprise if they left AEW and went to WWE? Who it would be? Cody. Cody. Definitely. Yeah. 100%. I was thinking him. Yep. I and mean, then, And then maybe uh, Omega would top the, out the top five. Or the Bucks. If or you the Bucks. Because, yeah. like, they've never been there. Like, yep, yep. You know, I mean, I don't. Interesting to think of. It, here's the weird thing, too. And I don't know how you feel about this. I don't think the Bucks are ever going to go to WWE. I just don't. Um, I do think Omega might. There's a chance that Omega could at least go there for a year run, two year run, just to see what the fuck's yeah, up. Yeah, see what happens. Yeah, you never yeah. know. So, and you never know, too, like in the future with working agreements and shit like that, there might be a lot more possibilities of things that they could do especially if Vince is remotely open to doing stuff like that. He's the, the only person here, you know, like if Vince is like, okay, it's going to happen tomorrow. So, you know, if he has to do that, uh, if business isn't up, if it's certain shit like that, he's definitely going to go there. Cause dude, we're, we lived through that era of shit that we never thought Vince McMahon would do. And we seen him do it on a regular basis because they were losing to WCW. Yep. So. And now with the rise of AEW, that is a possibility again. And especially like the status of Raw, because again, bringing up the fact that I haven't been paying too much attention to Raw. I've been watching SmackDown here and there a bit more, still catch NXT as far as the WWE product goes. But man, Raw is just still that three-hour commercial heavy, Ugh. just all over the place show. I, I DVR it and it's tough to watch. Yeah, That, that means fasting, fast forwarding through not only commercials, but segments you know you're not going to be into. And it's still a, a fucking drain. Yeah. It's and really, I'm a wrestling fan. It's really draining. Like, I've gotten to the point where if, I, if I'm not watching anything specific on a Monday night, I might just switch over and kind of see what's going on. But as far as leaving my television on that channel for three hours, that's not happening anymore, period. No way. So uh, it just is what it is, man. But 
We have to take a quick commercial break. Before we do that, I'd like to remind you guys, if you are listening on iTunes, please hit us with a five-star review. It really helps out the algorithm and gets more eyes and ears on the program. Of course, you can listen to us every week on your favorite podcasting platforms such as Apple iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and of course, every week on churchillpictures.com. So we are going to take a quick commercial break. And when me and the Jay get back, we're going to be talking a little bit or a lot of bit about the A&E biography on none other than Booker T. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. Want to advertise on the What's Real podcast? Send us an email today. Just title your email ads at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. For cheap, easy, and affordable rates, contact us today. Again, that's whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Would you like to advertise? Send us an email today. This is Ed for the What's Real podcast. Join us next week for episode 71. We're going to go down to the drive-in with our buddy Joe Bob Briggs for another classic double feature of horror and just utter nonsense. Also, we're going to take a look at the A&E biography on Shawn Michaels. And that's not in the world of wrestling as we go over to the dark side of the ring this week with Nick Gage. All this plenty of goofs, and much, much more on episode 71 of the What's Real podcast right here next week. And we're back here on the show. And as I mentioned, it's time to take a look at the premiere of the A&E biography on WWE superstar Booker T. Uh, Robert Booker, Booker Teal Huffman Jr., better known by his ring name Booker T, of course, is one of the most decorated professional wrestlers uh, that I can think of, honestly. Um, he started out uh, in Texas, that's where he's from. Uh, they get into, of course, like where he's from, his his, you know, uh, his relationship with his brother, his older brother, who would later become tag team partners with, his family life, uh, the passing of his mother at an early age, and his, of course, uh, getting into the world of professional wrestling. Uh, he was kind of getting into wrestling in the late 1980s. Uh, which was essentially like the dying, utterly dying days of the territory. Like whatever was remotely left of the territory, uh, territories, I should say, existed in 1989, 88, but they were doing bad. Okay. Even the wrestling was kind of on an upturn. Um, he trained under Ivan Putsky and uh, Scott Casey, who was uh, probably most well known for being a job guy in the WWF and WCW. Uh, know, Crockett promotions and things back in the day. Um, he would originally debut on Ivan Putsky's Western Wrestling Alliance live television show as G.I. Bro, a uh, role that he would play once again in WCW in the late 90s during their dying days. Um, but they would go out of business and quickly Stevie Ray, uh, who's his real life brother, uh, were spotted by Skandor Akbar, and this is what led them to work for the Global Wrestling Federation, the GWF, which is the first time that I saw him 
uh, wrestling as part of the tag team, the Ebony Experience, uh, as the GWF was on ESPN uh, when we were kids. And that was probably like around the time when you were starting to get into wrestling. The J, I want to say that was around yeah, because or so. Th- that was when it didn't suck me in yet. Like I would catch global wrestling and it fascinated me enough to check out and, you know, shout out to K Clo, my childhood friend. I remember he and I, you know, we were always big sports fans and, and played all kinds of sports. So like wrestling was, you know, one of the few that we weren't into yet at that point. So we're like, Oh, let's give this a try. Cause this was kind of like the after school hour. Like it was on at yep. like five, like yep. randomly, you know, so yep. you would, would catch it on ESPN. So that's, yeah, that's where it started kind of peaking my interest. Did it get sucked in through it? But I remember, you know, definitely catching some of it. And, and yeah, that's like so funny revisiting his early uh, career with GI Bro and the Ebony Experience, two hilarious gimmicks. But like anything, man, when you believe in it and pull it off, you you present that believability to the audience. And he pulled off the uh, GI Bro character and the Ebony Experience was, was big for the time in the uh, GWF promotion. Well, as a kid who watched the GWF after school, uh, they were one of the more memorable things. Um, I also remember uh, Marcus Alexander Bagwell, later known as Buff Bagwell, uh, was being a part of the Global Wrestling Federation. I remember the Lightning Kid. Um, yeah, Six Pac. And, and Jerry Lynn uh, wrestling in GWF a little bit. So, like, they had, like, this weird, I, I don't even know how to say like, they they would repeat their shows a lot. So, like, it was very possible that by the time these guys ended up somewhere else, they were still airing these episodes on ESPN. Um, right. And th- that was the case, too, when they first made their debut in WCW as the Harlem Heat. Now, it's kind of weird. Of course, they're known as Stevie Ray and Booker T, uh, but they were first known as Cole and something. I forget their fucking name now. Uh, yeah, I forget. But it wasn't Booker T and Stevie Ray. Uh, and this is so weird. This is literally like the only time in wrestling history I could repeat something like this. And it's I can say that I've never heard this before. But they got signed by WCW because of Sid Vicious, a.k.a. Psycho Sid, Sid Moody, yeah. uh, which is crazy. Um, and I felt like once they kind of found their knack in WCW that like they were uh, considerable members of the roster. Um, I remember them having a run with Colonel Robert Parker. I remember Sherry being their manager. Um, they were always one of the more prominent tag teams in WCW. And I was even thinking about this, watching this, right? So there's the whole Crockett Promotions era of, of the company, which I'm not including in this. I'm just talking WCW. Um, when you look over the entire history of the WCW, Harlem Heat's got to be in the top three teams maybe ever um, because this isn't prime area road warriors. They really weren't in WCW for any long period of time. Um, the Steiners to me are probably the best one. Um, but then you have like Doom, uh, Nasty Boys, you know what I mean? Like they're right there with anyone from that point until when WCW folded. Oh, for uh, sure, is one of the absolute best tag teams in the. Country. And when they were with Sherry, like that added, I like that always stands out to me. Yep, the threesome of them, and you know, of course they, you know, which they have to do with an African American professional wrestler, you know, coming from like you said, like the tail end of the territory days. I mean, he was in the, the round, you know, around the the era of 
horrible racism, especially yeah. dependent on where they were wrestling. And they talk about Hog Wild, and you know, yeah, for those I who don't know. That. Yeah, Hog Wild was an event that was at Sturgis, which was a biker rally. So the entire audience was literally bikers. And Booker T and uh, his brother Stevie Ray both say in the documentary here that they were literally the only black dudes in all of South Dakota during these events. And they just got so much heat from all these racist assholes. But, you know, they took it in stride overall, man. They were professional and, and did their part. And it was probably around that time. I mean, because, dude, me and you were both watching wrestling as friends and shit at this point. Um, We all liked Harlem Heat, but we all kind of recognized that Booker T was the best one. You know what I mean? Um, And then around like 96, 97 ish, I think Stevie Ray got hurt and they started using Booker T in more of a singles role. And uh, he had that feud with Rick Martell over the TV title and stuff like that. Uh, like that stuff was really good. He was feuding with Saturn, um, just a lot of really good stuff. And like, that's what we were saying just a couple of weeks ago here on the show, back in the day with WCW, man, their mid card stuff was loaded. They had tons of dudes, tons of good matchups. And Booker T was definitely a big part of that for about like a year and a half or so till Stevie Ray would eventually come back. They would feud. They would have the whole different thing where Stevie Ray would go with the NWO and shit like that. But like there was a large period of time there where they were still a team, but Stevie Ray was hurt. But Booker T had a nice little run there where he had TV title reigns and stuff like that too. That, that all started because of fate. Like you mentioned, his brother getting hurt, kind of forcing them to use him as singles. And as you know, us in the no wrestling fans know at the time, WCW was run so unorganized for the most part and things like that. So uh, I guess Rick Martell was supposed to win the U.S. title off of Disco Inferno on this show. TV, Booker TV T title. had already wrestled. TV title and, and Booker T had already wrestled, but Rick Martell just thought he was doing a promo flying in from Canada, didn't have his wrestling boots. And what does even us goofs know? Hey, you always, always have your gear. Yep. <laughs> always be ready. And, and Rick Martell, uh, uh, that wasn't at the time. So they said, book, you know, even though you already wrestled, we need you. Rick Martell doesn't have his, his uh, boots and you're going over and winning your first title. And, and it kind of started from there. As you said, his whole singles career sparking from, from just kind of the way fate worked out for him. Yeah. And that's, that's, there's a lot of stories in wrestling like that. You know what I mean? That's exactly yeah, what right. Place, right about. time. And you know, so, so Booker T was kind of getting a look here uh, that, you know, would kind of stall out again once, you know, Stevie Ray would come back and they'd become a tag team. Now, they would have some big matches. I specifically remember a match. I want to say it was uh, a four corners match that they did that was a WCW main event uh, at one of their pay-per-views. And it was the Giant, Luger, and Harlem Heat. And the winners got all the belts kind of a thing. Um, They didn't win the match, but they did really well for themselves. And it was, again, another good showing for Booker T. Um, They would kind of show how Booker would stick around. And by the time the company was kind of on the downside and Vince Russo was in the company, Booker T got his first shot to really win the title. And they did this completely randomly. I remember this uh, when they did it. But Bash at the Beach 2000. It's one of the most controversial things in WCW history because it's when, you know, Jeff Jarrett did the laying down in his match thing for Hogan. 
There was a problem with with Russo and Hogan live on the pay-per-view. Hogan and everybody was shooting. It was a big fucking mess. But what people forget about that night is it ended with Booker T beating Jeff Jarrett for the WCW title, the title he would win five times. Uh, and, you know, Booker T, without a doubt, it, he, you know, he won the title in the very, he, he united the United States title and the world title in the very last Nitro against Scott Steiner. Um, they cover that about how a lot of guys were happy with sitting on their Time Warner contracts with WCW to just sit at home and get paid. And somebody like Booker T took that as an opportunity, just decided to forgo that shit, went to the WWE and worked his ass off and became a member of the roster for a decade. Well, and as they said, it was a, a rough start as Booker T was in the infamous main event of Raw when they first started the WCW guys coming over with uh, the pre-fermentioned Marcus Alexander Bagwell, and they just shit the bed in the match, which most people, even in the back, and I think Vince and, and uh, you know most of the agents at the time in, in the backstage of WWE did blame the majority of that, if not all of it, on Bagwell as being underprepared and not really Booker T. But you know what a rough start to, to main event Raw come off with a shitty match against Bagwell. And then his first run-in was Stone Cold that they cover in this. He throws Stone Cold through a table. And as Stone Cold will later say, when it first happened, he thought it was Booker T's fault. But he studied the footage and he realized that he was just sweaty. He just happened to kind of slide off the announce table. And the way he landed on the concrete in this steel chair, he ended up breaking parts of his back. Stone Cold, but again, what a start! You have a you know you kind of shit the bed main eventing Raw in your first match in WWE coming over from WCW, and then you hurt the biggest star that they have, and and you know guys in the locker room are kind of weary of you. But uh, as Triple H says in this, you know he stayed his course, he stayed professional, and his talent rose above, and you know he finally carved out his way and, and kind of got over those early hiccups. Absolutely. So, and of course they would go on to show you know, the type of career that Booker T would have in the WWE, uh, especially with one of his favorite uh, or one of my favorite incarnations of Booker T was, of course, King Booker. King Booker. Which was great. That, he was great as King Booker. I, I definitely yeah, like that. Um, but, you know, he would end his career to have a Hall of Fame career, a two-time Hall of Famer, by the way, because uh, Harlem Heat's in and he's with in Harlem by Heat. himself. So, yep. you know, kudos to him there. Um, definitely always like Booker for, for the most part, this was basically a total fluff piece. They did talk about, uh, you know, uh, Booker being involved in over 26 robberies of Wendy's that he would spend uh, a little over a year in prison for, um, at one time. So it was kind of a redemption story. I knew they were going to, you know, at least bring it up. Um, didn't feel quite the way that it did last week, uh, with Macho Man, uh, as we talked about on last week's episode. But uh, overall, um, I thought it was good enough. It's kind of what I expected it to be. Um, I, I'm not going to say I was super impressed by it or anything like that, but I thought it was entertaining enough. And, you know, I'll take it. That, that's what a lot of the wrestling community, uh, you know, again, just social media that I follow and things what was kind of saying with the fallout that, of course, you know, this is this, the similar content of what you could expect from a WWE in-house series. Yeah. And we talked about that, like at the induction of this, this whole series. So it's still entertaining. But as you mentioned, you kind of get that flush flush. F damn, I can't talk right now. Hey, you know, I'm having a brain aneurysm, not just a brain fart. <laughs> Fl fluff piece. Say that 22 times faster, Jay. But yeah, it turns into a bit of a fluff piece. Uh, and, and, you know, give shout out to uh, John Pollock at Post Wrestling that I was reading where they 
bring up the pre-fermented hog wild that we were discussing at Sturgis. And as John Pollock was saying, and a lot of people, again, within the social media wrestling community were saying, one of the biggest controversies of this was once this theme was introduced, you know, like the racism from the bikers and stuff, it was a significant flaw that erased any discussion of the controversial lead up to WrestleMania 19 and Booker T's match with Triple H. Since the documentary aired, writer and professor David Dennis tweeted and later deleted that he was interviewed and spoke at length about the controversial lead up, all of which failed to make the cut. And if for those that don't remember, the angle was discomforting in 2003 and would be even more so today as Triple H played a heel out of another generation, referring to Booker T's hair, quote unquote, people like you don't win the championship and telling him to, quote unquote, dance for me. In the end, the heel was victorious and left a sour taste because of its uncomfortable buildup. And then after that, Booker T at the time was moved back to an intercontinental title level following that high profile match. So for them to kind of cop out on some of that stuff is what we're talking about, where it's creating a lot of miseven episodes within this, albeit these are all entertaining and, and I'm enjoying them. But you know, for fans of, of our stature that have been around for as long as we have, we kind of like to get down to to more of the, the nitty grittiness and, and kind of cover everything, not just throw together a fluff piece. Well, check this out because the twist and turns keep coming because Booker T has come out and said that, nope, they didn't take anything out. None of that stuff was supposed to be in there. I'm, you know, I'm not mad about it. It's I don't know what people are talking about. And they just interviewed the writer and professor for yeah, probably a couple I, hours for no reason. I don't believe him because it's a company line thing. Of course, that's what yeah. Booker's he, he still works for the company. So I that's what I'd expect him to say. But you're you're absolutely right. Um, it kind of does a disservice to anybody watching it that they didn't cover it at all or at least try and explain themselves or give any kind of semblance of what they were doing at the time. Um, it's just kind of a cop out. So I agree there. And that definitely takes it down a few notches from being something, you know, that you would take extremely seriously. It's it's essentially, you know, a glorified puff, puff piece. And we, we talk about it. It's, it's one of those things like from my personal perspective, hey, Ed, with this particular episode, we, we know so much about Booker and kind of saw the majority of his career. And, and it wasn't anything like outlandish or as interesting as say, you know, coming up like a Shawn Michaels or warrior ultimate warrior or anything like that. But because of that, when I go into some stuff with kind of like lower expectations, this one was, was pleasantly surprising overall. I enjoyed it just for the fact that Booker's Booker really is what it comes down to. Cause his story was really cool to relive. He's a good dude. He was always a great wrestler. I mean, man, we always talked about it, dude. One of the most, I would say most underrated finishers ever is the Harlem hangover. I agree with that. Like I always said, I, I used to, yeah, for those listening don't know, Booker T's one finisher, the Harlem hangover, he'd do a front flip leg drop onto a guy from the top rope, and he's a big dude. It was a very impressive finisher, and again, like surprising he even pulled it off for, for a lot of years. Uh, but yeah, it was it was fun reliving his, his life and career, and it was mostly positive. You know, he, he talks about from his childhood mistakes, learning from it, so that was a cool aspect of the whole story where, you know, he turned his life around and became an iconic Hall of Fame professional wrestler. So all, all things said and done with within its flaws, I still enjoyed this episode. Absolutely. Uh, it could have been better, could have been worse. So we'll leave it yep, at that. Good, good way to put it. Yeah. So, so we are going to take another quick commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to head on down to the drive-in with our buddy Joe Bob Briggs to talk about a double feature of the year 2000's Ginger Snaps and 2020's 
fried berry. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. Hey, everyone. It's the Jay from the What's Real podcast here today to talk about ChurchillPictures.com. Churchill Pictures was founded by two childhood friends that grew up in Churchill Borough, just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Jared Bajoris and Damian Fusca began collaborating on their first feature film in 2007, Deference, winner of the Silver Ace Award at the Las Vegas Film Festival in 2012. Go to churchillpictures.com to check out our original trailers, documentaries, comedy sketches, the entire history of the infamous Backyard Wrestling League, UCW, exclusive independent wrestling content, and exclusive videos showcasing our next huge film project entitled The Marks. This includes an appearance from our character, the feature presentation, Johnny Starr, on the streaming talk show, Alone Together Pittsburgh. We are Churchill Pictures. Established from the bond of two childhood friends, we envision creating visual content that is completely original, thought-provoking, and most importantly, entertaining. Churchill Pictures. Picture the possibilities. Go to churchillpictures.com today. And we're back here at the old drive-in with our buddy Joe Bob Briggs, uh, bringing you guys a double feature this week. Uh, First up is from the year 2000. Uh, It's a movie from director John Fawcett, uh, who hasn't made, I mean, he's made some stuff, but he hasn't made anything, you know, to this level um, that I would say to this level. It's a Canadian production and it is titled Ginger Snaps. Uh, it's the story of two outcast sisters, Ginger and Bridget, in the mindless suburban town of Bailey Downs. On the night of Ginger's first period, she is savagely attacked by a wild creature. Ginger's wounds miraculously heal, but something is not quite right. Now Bridget must save her sister and save herself. Um, Ginger Snaps kind of made uh, somewhat you know, household names at the time of Emily Perkins and Catherine Isabel. Uh, the two main actresses in this. Uh, Mimi Rogers is in this as well. She plays like their mom. and Well, not like their mom. She's their mom. Um, <laughs> yeah. Lucy Wallace uh, shows up in this one as well. Uh, it's a surprisingly good cast. It's mainly Canadian actors. But uh, Ginger Snaps is one that I remember uh, from when it came out uh, as one that was like a big surprise to people. Um, it's a pretty good werewolf movie it's quirky there's some goofy humor and stuff like that in it but ultimately it's a pretty good story and it works for what it's supposed to be um it reminds me a lot of like it doesn't feel like it's from the 80s but it's like if it reminds me of a lot of the 80s teenager movies but with werewolves um so i like that i think that the effects in this are pretty cool too um the two lead actresses are really good in it um and, you know, overall, Ginger Snaps is a pretty cool flick. Yeah, unlike so many that we cover for the J that I haven't watched in a while and some of the ones I haven't even caught, Ginger Snaps, uh, yeah, I've seen a bunch of times, always liked it. I'm a big proponent of, of werewolf films, as you know. Hey, yeah, I love me some werewolf films. And, uh, yeah, this was always uh, kind of cult classic to me. I always enjoyed it. It uh, has its own little, you know, kind of world that it sets up that I love. You know, it's like weird little Canadian town that it is. And and like you said, it has kind of like the homages to, to something like Heather's, yeah. you know, things like yep. that. 
And and Joe Bob's breakdown um, here on the last drive in in his interludes was was always solid in this. You know, nothing too crazy about like learning you know new things about the film or anything like that. But but still, you know, he always has great insight, and uh, that was no exception with this one. Um, you know, I, I like I always like the breakdown of the the effects guys too on something like this because yeah. I was always so into the werewolf effects stemming from of course an american werewolf in london in the howling and anytime somebody's going to do a werewolf film with their effects people they're like okay like we got to do something unique you know like it's it's been done so well in in those two pre-forementioned films we got to put our take on it And, and this is no exception as joe bob says with the creature effects in this when the, you know, she finally fully turns into the, the transformed werewolf at the end. Since she was going to be a female werewolf, the director wanted absolutely no hair. So what a challenge yeah. there for the effects guys. <laughs> like, yeah. dude, I got to make a werewolf with no hair and they pull yeah. it off because it's a unique looking thing. You know, the, the practical effects, like Joe Bob said, again, like with the it was a guy in a rubber suit kind of thing, but it, it shot really well. And the, the suit worked. The effects were cool. And that always stood out too, but yeah, like the build up to to her fully turning and the violence that ensues and everything else. Uh, this was always a standout movie for me. Uh, Ginger Snaps. Yeah, and it's pretty, I would say, ahead of the curve considering it's twenty yeah. years old at this part. Exactly. At this point, uh, which is a really empowering female movie. It, this movie's inherently about female forms of nature, like. We've seen movies in the past where they use the werewolf or vampire allegory for like drug use uh, or even puberty and stuff like that. And that's basically what you're getting here, but with a girl having her first period. So uh, it's an interesting story. It's funny. It's quirky. The effects are pretty good. It's interesting. There's really good acting performances. Um, So like this one kind of hits all the notes that you want it to. Exactly. Um, yep. It's it's not perfect, but it's really good. Um, it's it's much better than it deserves to be, and it's kind of one of those movies where people weren't seemingly ready for it when it came out. It they couldn't even get distribution for it in the United States. Um, but it's you know one of those movies that people like Joe Bob even said that people discovered on HBO. I I was more of the ilk of it. It was discovered on video and stuff from the people that I knew and what I knew and stuff at the time. Um, so, you know, but as long as a movie catches and and has as an audience, you know, in one way or shape or form, it's still a good thing. So, you know, at least people were able to find the movie. And I think that it's, it's gone on to considerable cult status. And I, I thought the one thing too, because I I know I've been a little bit critical so far this season about what they've been playing on the last drive-in. I think Ginger Snaps is perfect for what Joe Bob does. Yeah, it was it was really good, and and, and it was another thing too. As, as familiar as I am with the film, and always loved it, I I haven't watched it in a bit because, as we say, consistently aging ourselves on the show. Hey, yeah, time flies, so it's been a bit. And when I saw it pop up there, I'm like, oh, I wouldn't mind you know rewatching Ginger Snaps. Which begs the question: It's actually kind of shocking with we're you know full circle with the show and our themes, talking in our variety hour about uh, death, you know faces of death specifically and these reboots, remakes, reimaginings. It's like kind of shocking they haven't rebooted Ginger Snaps when you think about it. Speaking I know, or, or just made a ton of annoying sequels or, or something to it. Yeah, because yeah, I, I, I know I, it had a couple sequels which I never actually saw. To, to be honest with you. Well, well, dude, here's the weird thing about Ginger Snaps. Um, and, and I'm saying this solely from an idea that this is a movie from 2000 
it doesn't come across as dated as a lot of stuff from 2000 does. Um, I was really surprised by that because I thought that I, I was like looking forward. It's a good point. Like goofing on it a little bit, but it's not as is outstanding as you'd think it would be. So uh, that the was only thing impressive. that the, that kind of popped on along those lines was the the character that she she loses her virginity to the goofy Dude, I was, kid. Yeah, I was gonna say that <laughs> he's funny. I forgot yep. how funny he is. Like when he's turning into he's like a half werewolf or like a infected, and he's like fucking with that little kid, and yep. the other sister she confronts him, him, and he's all goofy. <laughs> yeah, so he was think I think I have a class to go to. Yeah, like all, with a syringe in his neck, but. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, the movie has a pretty good sense of humor. It's pretty well fleshed out and well written. Like I said, it, it ticks the boxes. So uh, I thought this one uh, was pretty good. So the J, uh, we got any taglines for Ginger Snaps? Of course. Hey, yeah, what's real breaking down the films tagline portion here? Ginger Snaps. They don't call it the curse for nothing. Hey, yo. okay. I was able to find another one. Uh, and it's kind of funny, too. It's like 10 years too late at this point. But Hungary like the wolf. So, <laughs> uh, but this one, as you know, we got, we do a five star rating scale for movies here on the show. Uh, I'm going to go with three and a half stars for ginger snaps. Right with you on three and a half. Hate you. All right. So that was the first movie uh, of the, uh, the double feature. The second one was a premiere of sorts. It was a movie brand new uh, to shutter. Uh, it's from 2020 and it's directed by Ryan Kruger. And it's called Fried Berry. Uh, it's a South African film as well. So uh, Barry is a drug-addled, abusive bastard who, after yet another bender, is abducted by aliens. Barry takes a backseat as an alien visitor assumes control of his body and takes it for a joyride through Cape Town, South Africa. What follows is an onslaught of drugs, sex, and violence as our alien tourist enters the weird and wonderful world of humankind. Um, I expected to hate this movie. I hadn't seen it before they showed it. I saw that it was on Shudder, but I hadn't watched it up to that point. Um, I thought it was going to be a really grotesque movie. Um, and that's really not what it was. It was like one part sci-fi, one part drug movie, one part art house. It was really different. Some um, horror. It, yeah, absolutely. Um, I was really surprised at how good this was. Dude, um, I love this. <laughs> yeah. yeah but what, did you, because I know that uh, me and you talked a little bit off air about this one, and I told you how to watch this one. Did you take my advice on that? I did. I watched it last night. Okay. Free, free and clear of anything. Yeah. It's, it's, as I sometimes do, what Ed's alluding to, I'll watch some stuff in my office. I might be kind of distracted. And he suggested uh, for this one, I definitely watch it in my free time and pay full attention, which yeah, I'm, I appreciate that heads up because I, I did really enjoy this. I was really impressed with the amount of style that this one had. Um, there's a lot of really interesting lighting choices and just some of the stuff that they do. I just wasn't expecting this type of movie. Um, and that's great. This is one of those times where that was a good thing for me. Um, I thought it was thoroughly entertaining. I thought, uh, first off, Gary Green plays Barry in the movie. Uh, the guy's scary looking, admittedly. <laughs> Which is why they use him. <laughs> yes, he's a unique looking person. So it works in the role. Um, it adds some humor to the movie, which, it, you know, you think this movie would be stark black, but it's really not. Um, you know, it's just so, it was refreshing, really. To, I mean, I know that's weird to say about a movie that's, no, that's a good so call. dark. Yeah. But it, 
it, it was a shocker in that it was a surprise from beginning to end. I was really impressed with what they were able to do with this because I just wasn't expecting it at all. As, as Joe Bob mentioned in one of his interludes during this, uh, a huge aspect to the film is the music and the soundtrack. I and that, that's definitely a huge thing. And it's kind of like the electronic music that kind of gives you that kind of edginess. And you know what it reminded me of this film was a Safke Brothers film. Which one? It, it reminded me of a Safke Brothers film, like Good Time or Uncut Gems because okay, of the electronic yeah. like music like that and the way it was i think it like you know really is comparable to to their kind of world that they created as well like i and i i like that a lot because i love both the safi brothers films uncut gems and good time dude and i've also kind of compared those with uh, a movie called irreversible from gasper no and yeah that's and it's in that type of realm too where the sound is being used to make the viewer feel a certain way Exactly. Um, yeah. And it, it puts you on it, edge. Yeah. This movie is very effective. Like, dude, the one thing that I thought about when I was watching this is like, this is one that would also be really good to see in a theater um, because the music, because of the lighting, because of it's just it, it adds to the overall atmosphere of the movie. Um, but like, again, dude, I was really impressed by this because a lot of times I feel like certain certain filmmakers don't have like this is a newer movie. And it's from South Africa, which surprised me because you don't see that a lot. So immediately I was worried about budgetary concerns. They were able to work around any type of budgetary. Yeah, I had no no issue with anything. Yeah, I was really surprised at that because this movie is pretty ambitious with the story that they're trying to tell. And at points it gets pretty ambitious with what they're trying to show you on the screen. But it all works really well. I was really surprised by that, man. I mean, this one's something... This is like one of those movies. I mean, I know it's from 2020, but like it's still a fairly new movie. So like if somebody asked me like, hey, have you seen anything recently that was like really like, wow, I'd be like, check out Fried Berry because it's just like this is going to be an onslaught on someone else that has no idea what they're walking into. Um, But it's really good in that return. It's not like gross out or anything like that. It's just something you it kind of reminds me in the aspect of how sorry to bother you was. Like yeah. you, th- you throw that movie in somebody's lap with certain expectations and it's completely different than what anyone really thought about it. So it- it's going to be surprising or probably a memorable experience to most viewers. And that's really what you want as a filmmaker. That's what you're trying to make. You know, the sick collector in me. Hey, uh, I just watched this last night. It's on Shutter, which I have. But just as a collector, this is one that I'm like, yeah, I got to get this on on Blu-ray. That's cool. Just to have in the collection, you know, um, yeah. Because I, I'll, I'll say that bringing it up, I am a huge Ryan Kruger fan now. The writer director, yeah, um, awesome job. Uh, like like Joe Bob said, which as you know, as an independent filmmaker, I have mad respect for. Joe Bob mentioned that this dude was just abusive on where he threw this movie. Like anybody that would hear him, he would try to get them to see it and watch it and send it to like forty some film festivals. And that's what you have to do, you know. Yeah. Kudos to to Ryan Kruger. For for that and I, I think a, a big attraction that you and I would have towards Ryan Kruger in this film was the fact that, uh, and again, this is all from Joe Bob and in his interlude commentary. He mentions that he was a, a child of the '80s, like us. Yep. So he has all these kind of, you know, the quote-unquote Easter eggs or homages to things like Alien, ET, 
all this different 80 stuff, even like specifically, I remember him saying Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And, and you wouldn't even be able to place exactly where the influences were, maybe even in just some of the random violence that occurs throughout or some, you know, different stuff like that or something. Gives you, but uh, gives you something to keep an eye out with in future viewings. of too. Exactly. And that's a huge part of it. Uh, th- this did have some laugh out loud moments, which you always love, uh, you know, when he just starts, you know, because like Ed said, he broke down the synopsis. He, he gets taken over for, by basically an alien, you know, after being abducted. And so he just starts fucking. <laughs> like the the one lady's like you gotta make make some sort of sound because he's just all silent and goofy so he just does the he steals the rick flair which makes sense woo 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 and, and dude <laughs> i love it. i was dying and obviously it's an alien so it doesn't really know how to talk and things like that but i love those little <laughs> moments of where like he would hear yeah, something just repeat on shit TV. yeah like and it, it dude it's just really well done in in the way that they did it they managed to take a movie that for all intents and purposes should have been super depressing and dark and found a way to spin it around and do something completely different with it. And I definitely appreciated that. And uh, I understood why Joe Bob showed it on the show because at first I was a little confused, admittedly. Um, but I totally understand it now. I definitely recommend it. I think it's a movie a lot of you guys out there uh, should probably check out if you're especially into the weird stuff like we kind of take a look at uh, on the show. Uh, from time to time. So were you able to find a tagline for fried berry, the J? So I didn't find a tagline. So I just wanted to mention, cause this was a cool little creative thing too. Again, that inter- independent filmmaker in me kind of um, pointing this out in, in the tagline section, since there's no tagline, but of course I think I'm, I'm pretty sure it goes back to Spike Lee was the first to do it. You know, cause I you know would have, you. yeah, you would have classically a Martin Scorsese film and then Spike Lee did a Spike Lee joint. And then even, um, Brainford, hey Ed, the director of The Hangover, Todd Phillips. Yeah. Todd Phillips, he does a Todd Phillips movie. Well, uh, in place of a tagline, what Ryan Kruger does, which I thought was creative, he he does a Ryan Kruger thing, is what yes. he calls his movie. So that that stood out. It did too. I noticed the same thing. So yeah. uh, again, we do the five star rating scale here on the show. The J, take it away. I don't know. I'm geeked on it, and I just saw it, so I'm gonna go with four out of five on it. Hey Ed. Okay. Yeah. I went with three and a half on this one as well. I really enjoyed it. It, it kind of took me by surprise. So uh, this is definitely a successful week at the old drive-in here with Joe Bob. Uh, what would you say there? Yeah. Another great, another great time. Hey, I love coming down here to the drive-in. Absolutely. So we are going to take a quick commercial break and when we come back, we're going to go not just to the world of wrestling, but we're going to the dark side of the ring season premiere with Brian Pillman. So stay tuned for that and much more. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real Podcast. Hey everyone, this is The J with the What's Real Podcast. Here today for the unsung movie from Churchill Pictures in association with Cut and Run Studios distributed by Bayview Entertainment. The unsung in an old industrial town, a homeless man, Eric, roams the streets looking for a place to rest when he comes across a young girl, Samara, in danger. He runs to her aid and as a kind gesture, she leads him to a homeless village where he is inspired by the friendships he makes there. Soon he finds himself involved in the search for a serial killer while running afoul of the lead detective. 
The Unsung is now available to stream digitally to rent or own on Vimeo.com through a direct link at ChurchillPictures.com and now is available on Amazon Prime Video to rent or own. Go to ChurchillPictures.com, Vimeo.com, or AmazonPrimeVideo.com to check out The Unsung today. Hope lives in the shadows. And we're back, and it is time to get over to the dark side of the ring. Uh, season premiere, all about the loose cannon, Brian Pillman. Uh, this is an episode that I've been looking forward to for a while. Um, surprised it's taken to the third season for them to get to Brian Pillman, to be honest with you. Um, basically, me and the J are very familiar with Brian Pillman. Um, he first got on my radar when he was in WCW, uh, his feud with Jushin Liger. Uh, was a big deal. I remember those matches vividly from back in the day, and uh, I've kind of enjoyed those matches throughout the years. Uh, we also remember the time when he signed with the WWF uh, in 1997 and kind of his final days as well. So, uh, of course, the dark side of the ring starts out with Pillman uh, as a child, uh, and they get over the fact that he had uh, a significant amount of surgeries because he had polyps on his throat. And uh, this was kind of given as the reason by many people why he'd go on to become uh, a successful professional wrestler. Like this was the kind of thing that happened in his life early on uh, that gave him drive to want to do something special. And, you know, they would go through that stuff. They had his sister, uh, Linda, on this episode. Uh, of course, some of his children. Uh, I should say most of his children. Uh, they had Melanie Pillman, who fans will remember from being on uh, episodes of Raw uh, years ago, uh, one during the uh, controversial uh, Stone Cold Pillman gun angle, and of course after the death of Brian Pillman uh, on Monday Night Raw. Um, and they kind of went through, you know, the private life of Brian Pillman. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot here that I didn't already know. Um, they did kind of get into... Uh, the story of Brian Pillman with uh, the mother of his, his children who would uh, unfortunately meet uh, the end of her life due to suicide. Uh, there was a messy situation with the children, all that kind of stuff that they get into. Uh, I still feel like they didn't talk about everything in detail here uh, because we know a lot about Brian Pillman and they could have probably done a whole series on him alone, yeah. let alone one episode. Um, but, you know, I thought, you know, up to this point, especially, it's exactly what I, I was expecting to see from this episode. Yeah, I mean, it was really good and really sad and all the emotions. Hey, Ed, watching this uh, good, good initial breakdown there. Uh, one one other thing I would just mention at the outset of the review would be the inclusion of Brian's uh, Bengals, Cincinnati Bengals strength and conditioning coach, Kim, Kim Wood. Wood. He was really good yep. in this. I didn't know too much about him. He had some great insight being a close friend. He's one of the MVPs of this. Exactly. Sure. Yeah, that's why I wanted to shout him out early. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I mean, re reliving the early days is, is always, you know, a good positive part of it. Again, that's why it's kind of an emotional roller coaster as it gets further on into to some of the, uh, of course, the whole point of the show, the dark stuff. But, you know, him being in Stampede Wrestling, going from the Cincinnati Bengals into the Canadian football team and ending up in Canada where, 
what's the biggest wrestling in Canada, especially at the time, of course, stampede wrestling in the hearts. So, you know, his whole journey of falling into being trained by Stu Hart and everything is always cool. And, um, he even said in the, uh, documentary that Ric Flair noticed his potential pretty early on, which is a big thing. If you're getting noticed by Ric Flair off the bat. Yeah. They had a pretty high profile TV match in 1990 Pillman. and, and Yeah, Flair. exactly. Yeah. And, uh, that, that they just did. This is also the era too. You're talking, and and this is unfortunate. Brian Pillman came around a little bit too early. Um, I think he would have flourished if he would have came around just a few years later because he would have been thick in the prime of the Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels years of pro wrestling, and he would have probably got more of a shot. Um, but he was a smaller guy, and he made up for that. I mean, at first they went with like the the purebred babyface gimmick with him. And uh, he would eventually go heel in WCW, which I also remember as being a pretty memorable time. Uh, and they specifically talk about a moment that I remember we watched together live that was pretty funny. It was the moment where Bobby Heenan said fuck on TBS. Yeah. Uh, because Pillman was fucking around outside the ring. And he's like, oh, what the fuck are you doing? Bobby and just had like a surgery that. or something. So yeah, was- dude, I, I recorded that Clash of the Champions live and I still have it on tape somewhere. Uh, with the unedited fuck in there. Uh, But uh, that's another moment that, you know, there's the big story in this, and this this is the gist of what what Brian Tillman would do or one of the things he would become famous for. Uh, There was a time period where he was working a loose cannon gimmick, so he was trying to make people think that he was crazy. Uh, Really, what he was trying to do was work a bunch of the companies against each other to try and get more money. Uh, But the thing is, is it worked. Um, and it also worked during a time period where he had a really bad automobile accident where he injured his ankle to the point where he had to have nuts and bolts put in his leg. Um, and he even hid the details of that from the companies. Uh, the wrestling war was heating up at the time. And that's what kind of left an opening for a lot of this stuff. Um, the WWF were able to wrangle him away from WCW after a short stint in ECW. So there was a time period where like Pillman was one of the hottest people in wrestling because in a, in less than a month, he appeared on WCW, ECW and WWF TV. Yeah. And that was always such a cool little, like whenever anybody, cause you know, we, we just had that nostalgic love for, for ECW, but when any of the big stars like that would pop in, even if it was for a brief period and they did the lights out thing with Pillman's introduction and the lights came on and he's in the ring with the, the cane and everything and just, uh, you know, did a pretty memorable uh, promo with uh, the franchise Shane Douglas trying to get him kicked out of the arena and stuff. I, I rewatched that whole thing not too long ago. Uh, and it's really good. You know, it's, it's where Pillman's like literally about to whip his dick out and pee in the ring. And he's mm-hmm. like threatening to piss in the ring <laughs> franchise is going after him. So, so that, yeah, that was great. Cause all that stuff was, was ahead of its time, you know, the loose cannon gimmick. Cause you know, if, if guys in the industry don't know what you're doing and even Steve Austin, it's his former tag partner, one of his close friends half the times, like, you know, I don't know if that's a work or not. It's like us fans at that age, we had no clue, you know, what, what was going on. So, I mean, that's just an edgier seat kind of great thing that, that, you know, Pillman was pretty much the, the purveyor of, you know, like the originator of as far as like really going over the top and breaking the fourth wall. Yeah. The, the work shoot kind of deal. Yeah. Um, that, and that was totally ripe for that time period in pro wrestling uh, because it was such a big deal to have guys jumping back and forth and stealing other guys talent that guys could totally take advantage of that situation. 
So like, you know, Pillman did it in a certain way. Rick Rude did that in a certain way. You know, there was other people that would do stuff in different ways too, but that was all conducive to that era because that stuff wouldn't happen now. There's just no way with contracts and things like that that guys would be able or companies would be able to pull a lot of that stuff off. It was kind of the Wild West for that sort of thing back then. That's um I was just going to say real Go quick, hey, uh, that's that's perfect timing to add in because this was a, a actually a tidbit that I wasn't aware of, which is always, you know, standoutish for, for us to mention within these, that he went to that insider industry sh- uh, trade show and actually I was able to this. go up to Vince McMahon acting like the loose cannon, like nuts and outlandish. And I, after Pillman leaves, and they talk about it in the, the documentary here. Uh, JR like says to Vince, he's kind of like you are, Vince. He'll take a chance, you know? Because Vince was like, yeah. who the like, what was that? <laughs> so yeah. that was a pretty cool story. Yeah, I, I hadn't heard that. Yeah, that strikes me as totally a Pillman thing to do. Yep. Um, now, the one thing that I I didn't know at the time, I've come to know it, you know, know it since, but that whole part of uh, Cornette talking about Pillmanizing a body part, um, yeah, that was because he couldn't work anymore. And they yeah. realized that. And they had to kind of cover it up with an injury or something. But the one thing that I do remember about that was Austin did lay into him pretty good, or at least it looked like it. So yep. the fact that they kind of confirmed that, I was like, yeah, I do remember he that. He said he knew he had to. He needed to give him a yeah. true-to-life true, true to life ass beating. And he's he was right. Absolutely. That, that was the right thing to do. And it was weird because they were trying to make a guy who was a heel, a bigger heel, by beating up a guy who was another heel. And they got sympathy off the guy who was a heel because the other heel was way more healier than the other heel. Like, and it was in his hometown. So it was like, that was really a weird angle when you look back on it, but they did it and it worked. So uh, it's not surprising when you, when you look at it. I mean, it was pretty amazing if you think about the time period. And like I said, we lived through that time period of Pillman and WWF uh, as fans um, the smoke and mirrors that they were able to accomplish with him is pretty impressive when you look back on it. Yeah, and which brings up with him being a pioneer, love or hate the quote-unquote cinematic match that kind of Matt Hardy reinvented a few oh, years yeah. ago. It yep. goes goes back to the angle with Austin coming to Pillman's house and Pillman pulling a gun, and he's there with his wife and everything, and that was super controversial at the time. And I remember yep. us being wrestling fans, and I'll speak for myself, hating that. You know, yeah, and, yeah, and looking did. back on yeah. it and reliving it, it's like, you know, it is pretty edgy and, and different and everything. But yeah, I, like I remember being a wrestling now. fan. That's what I mean. I, but yeah. I just remember being a wrestling fan at the time. Like we were such nerdy teenage wrestling fans that anything non-wrestling, we just really didn't get into. And that was just kind of like weird for the time for us that they're doing basic. Because I remember us saying it back then, like, what is this, a fucking movie? You know? Yeah. But it was, but, yeah. but again, it was groundbreaking because... They, they still do cinematic matches, you know, to a whole other level to this day. And and I'll kind of say this. I'm not saying that I like it so much now. I just think it's it. I like it for the people that were involved in it. I think it works for them. It wouldn't really work for many other people. Yeah, um, Austin breaking into the house, Pillman being yeah, the, one and with the Pillman, gun, shouting. Ex- yes, absolutely. That that works for them and what they were doing at the time. And the way in the mood and the the atmosphere of the company was at the time, it wouldn't fit in any other era at all, not even close. Um, but it, I, I do find it interesting, and maybe from a, a kind of sad and tragic aspect because of what happened with Brian Pillman. Um, but 
you know, I can't really change the way that things worked out. So I can't explain that if, if that's necessarily the reason why or not. Um, but, you know, it, it was an interesting angle for the time. It's definitely something that I would never forget. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, it made bigger stars out of both guys. But it, it was just unfortunate because Pillman was involved in all these good things, but there was never any payoff because he'd always be hurt or there would always be some reason why he couldn't partake in the match. And that was starting to become problematic, whether the company felt that way or not. I kind of felt that way at the time being a fan. Yeah. And, and then he still, you know, when, when he was cleared at certain points in WWF, he still wrestled, as they say in this, which he shouldn't have been doing. You know, they show him taking a, a pretty hard suplex on the rampway against Goldust and things he does like the that. Drop kick off the top and misses yep. and it's brutal. Yeah. So he was still trying because as JR explains, uh, you know, Jim Ross at the time is trying to tell him, like, Brian, like you have so many different skills. This this could be like the next part of your career. And they're trying to put him into this non-wrestling role, but he was just kept refusing. And he just wanted to to wrestle even through all the pain and everything like that. And and the reality of it is that's what begins his pain pill issue. Yeah. And, and that's the sad even, part of it because there's a reason for it. But, you know, when it goes down that path, that's the, what's going to cause very, a very unhealthy lifestyle. And I didn't like the whole like they even asked Melanie Pillman if uh, whenever he crashed the Humvee, if he had any like substance problems. And she was like, no, he just took his medicine and this he fell asleep. And I'm like, that's bullshit. He definitely had problems at that point. I don't give a shit what anybody says. Um, you know, he definitely had issues. Um but, you know, it is what it is. Like, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not defending it and I'm not talking shit on it. It's just right. It is what it is. He's he's in terrible pain. You know, you take yep. pain pills to make it go away and, and you get addicted to things like that. And, and when you're on the road traveling, things like that, you know, because Melanie did mention that, like he was just he was wrecking a lot of rental cars and sleeping at the wheel. So it was yep. only a matter of time. It was one of those things. And like yeah. we always say, it could have been worse that first one. As bad as it was to destroy his leg, uh, you know, he still lived through it. And we kind of knew at the time. Like the one thing that I remember vividly when I was watching this is they showed that press conference uh, whenever Pillman signed with the WWF. And I remember, you know, at the time when that happened and everything pretty well. And the first thing I remember, because I was a pretty big Pillman fan. And we've even talked about this here on the show. Back in the day, we were WWF guys. Like, that's just the company that we kind of rooted for in the Monday Night Wars. Uh, I was really happy that they signed Pillman. And when they did that press conference, all I could think to myself, even back then, is, man, he looks like shit. Yeah. And he was never the same. You knew his body didn't look the same. Uh, and then Kim Woods even talks about the time where uh, he was, he said it was one of the times, last times he ever saw him where he had to kick him out of his house. Yeah. He was, he was like, you could see, he was like, you could see he had like the horse tranquilizer needle marks on his arm from the human growth hormones. And I mean, he, he knew what was happening to him yeah. and he had no choice, but to, to go down that road. Cut ties. Unfortunate. Uh, but I'm, I'm talking about even Pillman. Like Pillman knew what he was doing. Yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying. And, yeah. and was riding down that road and just was like, well, there's nowhere to turn off. It's just what it is. So yeah. I'm going to ride it as far as I can. And that's and the it part, was of unfortunate. Course, yeah, it just gets so sad. I was just going to say, and like you're bringing up the port that we kind of talked about off air where it just starts getting pretty sad as fans of Pillman and, and just, you know, seeing his kids in the interviews and things like that. But the reality well, of that show comes in. That's probably the most... The, the biggest revelations of this was confirmation of what happened after Pillman died. 
And that's the Melanie Pillman uh, would go on to kind of be a mess herself um, with drugs and alcohol, uh, uh, a stepfather in the role that, that was a shitty human being for sure. Um, the parents that was really the three tough. Kids. Yeah, watching uh, watching course, Brian Jr. recall the way he was treated by his stepfather, man, tearing up, just saying like anything he loved, like even video games, he would at least be tucked away in his room playing GameCube, but the stepfather would eventually come in and smash it and shit like that. He talked about having dogs trained to keep him in yeah. his room and shit. Uh, like, I mean, there's a lot of bad stuff. And it kind of shows you too that like, you know, we didn't think about this at all because we didn't really know. But like, you know, at the time we were like, oh, man, it sucks. Pillman died. Like we all liked him. That's a big loss to the wrestling business. And But what you forget about is he has kids. Uh, it's a big loss to them, too. You know what I mean? Especially when their mom does the things that she's been accused of doing that I'm not going to get into on the show here. But, uh, you know, it, it's not an ideal situation. It kind of ends somewhat happily. Uh, with Brian Pillman Jr. showing that he's, you know, he he has become a successful professional wrestler. He wrestles for AEW. He's part of the Varsity Blondes tag team. It's pretty good, um, you know. So that part was good, but it's just even at the end, like when they show the good part of it, it's still sad, and it's yeah. pretty evident that. And and I don't really know why, but like, dude, the way Brian Pillman died, he overdosed. Uh, they found him dead in a hotel room. It was announced on pay-per-view that night because he, he wasn't there for a match he was supposed to have. Um, but there's always been like this ominous end for Pillman. And it's kind of like there's this cloud over the wrestling. But there's a handful of deaths, I think, through the years uh, that have happened that are kind of like a dark cloud on the wrestling business. Like Owen Hart is one of them. Pillman's one of them. Chris Benoit is one of them. Um, even the warrior to a certain degree is one of them. Yeah, Eddie to a certain uh, and, degree. And then even, yeah, even, even going all the way back the Brody murder, you know, like there's a handful of death. And then there's other deaths that don't loom like that over the pro, like Bruno, for example, like his, his death doesn't loom over the wrestling business. Um, but there's ones that do, and this is, and for some reason, Pillman's one of them. Yeah. Um, and that's, and it, and it's it's dude, that's why it has a reputation. That's why they made this episode about it, because it has some sort of lasting picture, mental image, mood, something to it that, that other ones don't. Well, only 35 years old at the you know time of death was Brian. That's Pullman another thing. And, and it was just really rough. You know, say what you about about him, what you will and how you think about uh, Jim Cornette. But that was rough, too, because he was actually yeah. working behind the scenes for WWE at the time and was the one that called the hotel and was the one that received the news from the receptionist that he had passed away and had to relay all that. And he was tearing up telling that story. That was tough to watch. Um, and Dude, this is one to me that really hammers in the hardships of wrestling. Yeah. And I'm talking everything from, like, strained family life, uh, physicality, body getting broke down, depression, drugs, depression, uh, marital problems, drinking, uh, contracts and financial shit. Um, uh, a, a tag team that reached cult status that never made it because of probably politics in another company, uh, playing companies against each other. You know, like it really shows a fleshed out version of kind of like all the negative aspects of wrestling. Um, it, it's a cautionary tale on top of that. Um, like it's, it really highlights 
why wrestling's a lousy business. It really does. Maybe more so than any particular other one person's career. Uh, and maybe that's the reason why it, it kind of sticks in my memory, like the way that I was talking about earlier. Well, all that also leads straight to the fact that when Brian Pillman Jr. did decide that he wanted to get into wrestling and his family's reaction and everything, you know, cause yeah. even JR Negative. said, yeah, he's like, you know, take the positives, you know, the positive attributes of your father and, and try to learn, like you said about the cautionary tale of, of the negative spots, you know, cause at the end of the day, really Brian Pillman's demise came from his love of the business and not wanting to give up the, you know, hang up the boots and, and you know, try to fight the addiction and try to find a different role within it and, and just wanting to, cause I, I think that's a big motivation for him to abuse pain pills, of course, and being in pain was because he still wanted to be a physical specimen and, and, and wrestle period. It's, um, the, it's the ego. Yeah. And, and that, that can be the greatest, you know, defectant thing of all is the, the, well, the, dude, the human ego. That's why they say about the, like the ego is present for, the activity, but it's never present for the consequences. Yep. You know what I'm saying? Like whatever you did, your ego is there and it's a huge part of it. But whenever the hammer falls on you, your ego is nowhere to be found. You're alone. So, and, and I think that that's a great point to make for this too. So uh, it's definitely a cautionary tale. I will say this, dude, I think this is kind of a bold statement to make and I wasn't really sure that I would say this, but I, I think that it's pretty safe to say that, that I feel this way. I think this is the best episode of Dark Side of the Ring that they've made up to this point. Um, I was really impressed by it through and through. They really, they covered everything and they covered everything well. I felt, and, and not from the, the filmmaker's perspective, I'm even talking about the participants involved. Um, I felt like this one cut through the bullshit maybe better than any other episode that they've done. Not that all their episodes are filled with bullshit because they do a pretty good job of it, but this one was really, really good. And I hope it's indicative of what we're going to see from this point out because that, if that, if that's the case, the show's getting better as it goes on. Yeah, here they're kind of hitting their stride here in season three, and you know, kind of getting the feel for how they want to tell these stories and, and the docu series aspect of it. And uh, let's let's end it on a. Sum it up on kind of a positive note, hey, Ed, because another MVP of this, of course, was Brian Pillman's sister, Linda, Linda Pillman. She yeah. ended up uh, reconnecting all of his kids, all of the siblings. She took them away from Melanie and her husband at the time. It was the abusive stepfather. And it seems like all of them have grown up to be pretty overall, you know, normal uh, functioning adults and that sort of thing. Like we mentioned, you know, Brian Pillman Jr.'s in AEW. His sister, Brittany, um, you know, seemed healthy and, and beautiful. And and Danny, uh, I, I believe she came out as, as transgender and that sort of thing, you know, all power to her. So, so yeah, that was good to see. At least there was a positive spin that his kids, you know, got through this and are living vibrant lives. Uh, a, a good portion of that to his sister, Linda, who seems like an awesome person. So there, there was a positive kind of ending to it all too, with his, his children and his legacy. And dude, I saw that they were doing this too. I don't know. I, I'm assuming they get the, uh, the proceeds, but I thought this was pretty cool. Uh, pro wrestling tees. Remember back in the day, there used to be the Brian Pillman t-shirt with the four horsemen logo, like over his face. Yeah. They made one of her like that. And at the That's bottom, cool. it says, it says Linda Effin Pillman. That's <laughs> awesome. Like that's, that was really cool. And obviously the proceeds of that, uh, you know, go to his family. So you could probably check that on Pro Wrestling Tees if you guys want to get a, 
a shirt for yourself. It's and hey, a I did cool shirt. It's not a big deal. I was just curious uh, because I'm assuming it's kind of like how season two's opener was the Chris Benoit story, and it was parts one and part two. With the two parts, is that basically considered the first two episodes? No, it's a, they just did it in two parts like that, I guess, because they released them online. Just how they were releasing um, them, yeah. Because yeah. part one came out early on YouTube, which we all caught out, you know, before the actual airing of it. So I got gotcha. you. That's I was just curious on that. Yep. So that is it for Dark Side of the Ring. Brian Pillman, great, great episode. Uh, join us next week as we take a look at Dark Side of the Ring on Nick Gage, uh, known uh, as being a hardcore wrestler, uh, also known for bank robbery. So that's going to be a really interesting episode. Um, definitely looking forward to talk what about they, they bring forward on that one. That should be really good. Talk about Linda fucking Pillman, Nick fucking Gage. He's another fucking fucking nickname. And he's uh, kind of a one of one in the wrestling business, uh, so to speak. There's not many guys like him. Uh, Kind of a unique look, a unique gimmick. You know, a a violent, hardcore wrestler. Uh, But, you know, by all accounts and things that from what I've heard from people, he's a really super nice guy. So uh, we'll have to see how that is next week on the show. But we have to take a quick commercial break. Uh, Whenever we come back, we are going to talk some goofs and we're going to wrap up the show. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. Bayview Entertainment LLC is a full service media company committed to acquire, develop, produce, market and distribute audiovisual content. For over 15 years, Bayview made its name by being dedicated to releasing only the best programs in each category from some of the most trusted names in the field. Bayview's disc programming can be found throughout the country at all online suppliers plus fine brick-and-mortar retailers, as well as streaming video on demand at all major digital retailers and platforms. Bayview is honored to partner with Churchill Pictures LLC for the worldwide release of The Unsung, the newest feature film from Churchill Pictures. Follow details about The Unsung's upcoming release at churchillpictures.com and bayviewentertainment.com. Hey everybody, this is Herman James for the What's Real Podcast, and I'm here to just let you know to welcome you to Goofs Are Goofs. And we're back, and it's that time once again. So, the J, what do we got this week on the goof front? This week on the big episode 70 extravaganza. Hey, uh, I'm, throwing, uh, I'm throwing a whole bunch of stuff at your ale. So, we're going to start off with our viral video of the week, which I had sent to you. It was actually originally posted by Sports Center, where a... A uh, little Asian gentleman here that's a fan of Shawn Michaels actually had him do sweet chin music to him. <laughs> so, Dude, that's we've had this experience before with wrestlers where it's like, if you could take a picture or get a video of them doing their finisher to you, that's like almost better than anything else yeah. that you could get. It's you great. Know, I mean, he unless, sells it and then gets up and hugs Michaels. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I don't know. I'd feel... Uh, now here's here's the question, okay, the J. So, would you do that, or would you feel compelled to sell? <laughs> oh, you know me. I'd I'd take it to the next level. They'd be taking me to the fucking hospital. I'd be, I'd be Andy They're Kaufman like stretching in that shit. you out. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what's funny. Like the the uh, Twitter post thing, it says WWE wrestler legend Shawn Michaels hits me with sweet chin music. You know that he must have put. And then below it, it says disclaimer. 
It is fake acting. Please do not kick your friend in the face or TikTok will remove this again. So I guess some idiots are, you know, the usual shit, like, in, in, uh, you know, doing uh, repeat fucking offenders and taking it to the next level and kicking their friend in the face because of this. Dude, I'm pretty sure this was you. Okay. So it just reminds me of a funny story. So in high school, right? Me and you were in the same gym class, I'm pretty sure. It might not have been you, but I think you might have been in the class. I'm not 100% sure on this. Okay. But uh, it was like we were fucking around before class and like we were wrestling. And somebody, maybe you, was sitting in a chair and you're like, you know, like super kick me and I'll sell it. So like we did it. The teacher naturally thought it was real and kicked me out of the class. Uh, Nothing ever came of it, but I still remember how. Oh, yeah. Every. Like everybody was dying, like yep. in the class, because the teacher was, was the only one pissed. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's about how that would work out. Naturally. Yeah, would you? I don't know how you could think that would be any anybody else hate y'all, but the J. Yeah. Well, and it's like you know, on top of it too, like when you figure when the other person gets up and was like, no, we were fucking around, that the teacher would be like, oh, okay, no, they're like, I don't care, get out. I'm like, okay, well, I got kicked out of a class for fake kicking my friend in the face. I mean, that, that's just, you know, my whole legacy stemming from somebody that's whole family calls him the boy that cried wolf because of all my shenanigans and <laughs> using professional wrestling and acting and stuff in real life where I did a fake of uh, fake fall off a chair. Like I crashed my school chair, like faking it and literally broke my collarbone doing so when I was in elementary school. So. There you go with us in our legacy. Yeah. Next up, hate eel is uh, some Marvel controversy as from the moment Dr. Bruce Banner first transformed into the incredible Hulk fans have tried to uncover his greatest secret. Hey, Ed, how the heck does his pants manage to stay on turning from a 90 pound weakling into a thousand pound green rage monster puts a lot of stress on clothes. After all his shirt shoes and everything else tears free. How can the green Goliath somehow manage to protect his modesty? Hey, you know, and uh, I think that goes into Marvel just wanting to make money because a naked, incredible Hulk running around with a big, big green cock isn't going to be able to sell too many comic books. Yeah, I thought that'd be fucking common sense to most people, right? I mean, he has to be purple headed, too. That's like the the only yeah, purple cl- part. You don't think he'd be green? Well, it's probably a green shaft, purple head. I don't know. You know more about comics than me. So what can I say? And of course, you know, the interwebs, everybody's like breaking down the science behind it. Like how can he actually keep his pants on? And we won't diatribe into that. But yeah, I thought it was hilarious trying to think of uh, them trying to sell a naked Hulk. Cause you know, that would make sense if everything else is ripping off, his pants are going to rip off and you're just going to see Hulk, Hulk dong everywhere. Well, it's like, what is it? Like, He's a normal man that turns into this monster, but the only area on his whole body that doesn't grow is his waist. (laughs) That doesn't make any sense at all, but whatever, you know, it is what it is. Uh, The sense it makes, like I already said, hey, it is merchandising. You're not going to have a a green cock all over. Basically, yeah. Action figures and movie posters. So, but you know, but then again, it's like, why are people, people are worried about that, but nobody cares about like, why does Superman's costume stay on when he flies out of the atmosphere? Yeah. Like, well, yeah. I, I mean, they're all dumb questions. <laughs> can can of worms. Hey, can of worms. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. 
Next up is a quick tidbit here. Uh, we don't get political on the show as least as we as we can. But here on Goose or Goose, I didn't know if you saw this. Uh, it's a politician. I won't even say what party. Uh, Representative Green, and she's speaking at an America First rally, and she says, "Quote: Hey, El, we want the most beautiful Earth in the whole world." <laughs> Politicians, officials, right? everybody. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Good try job. The, try the prime rib. It's excellent. So next up on Goose or Goose, episode 70, in our theme of animals on drugs, the, Kentu- <laughs> <laughs> the winner of the Kentucky Derby, Medina Spirit, test positive for steroids. Now, I wonder, now so, so here's my question, right? So, you know, like wrestlers, you've heard stories about, like, we couldn't get any steroids, so I was taking horse steroids. Like, is there anything where, like, we couldn't get any horse steroids, so we just gave them a bunch of HGH and human steroids? Like, I I don't know. I'm just curious. The fucking horse is using blue whale steroids. But, yeah, I just, I I couldn't believe it. It's like, you know, you're looking for stuff, and it's like, this is going to be, like, the fifth or sixth goose or goose segment with an animal, a different animal on different drugs. You can't beat well, that. Pl- and it's all real. <laughs> and, and then the throw hey, like, what, what do you think the merits of ethics are in horse racing? Like, well, this horse was pumped full of steroids. So I'm gonna guess <laughs> yeah. Not very good. The jockey was Fuck. also on steroids. Hey, yo. But he was but no, also, but nobody cared. <laughs> th- he, he was, he was also three foot six. So it yeah. didn't matter. And I don't know steroids. Yeah. <laughs> as, as he shuffles away yeah. yeah next up on goose or goose um a 43 foot statue of a flying squid uh was purchased for two hundred and thirty thousand dollars from money made with covid relief funds in japan hey yo <sighs> this just in and people have too much money for pointless bullshit uh, I guess they, the, the local council made the decision that the 43-foot statue of a flying squid is going to be intended to help revive tourism because it's a fishing town in Noto, Japan. Now, I know I don't speak for everyone here, but I'm sure I do speak for a lot of people. Um, so you think that's going to help improve tourism, okay? I don't know how to tell you this, but no, it's not. At all. <laughs> the council sits down and the, the president's all serious, ready to get to business. And he's like, okay, how are we going to distribute the, the 230000 Like, I have a lot of ideas for the schools. You know, we could have clean water here, the fishing huts. And the one guy's like, sir, we already spent it. And he's like, really? On, on some of the stuff I've been talking about? Like, no, we purchased a giant squid statue. <laughs> we figure it would help for tourism. Like, um, you're all fired. Yeah, Get the he, fuck out. He super kicks them in Dude, full circle. I, uh, it, like, I don't know. Like, you know, so we had a whole year here to kind of learn from our previous mistakes. And I'm just happy to see that as collective human beings, we haven't learned fucking shit. Like, we, let's do something so this doesn't happen again. Like, nah, let's just build a fucking statue of a person. Nah, giant squid. Fuck it. <laughs> We, we've totally given up trying at this point. <laughs> like, it, it will help tourism. Come on. Yeah. Like, how do you think we should get people to come back here for tourism after a worldwide pandemic? Like, 
I don't know, man, but my gut's telling me giant squid statue, bro. It's like I agree to the squid statue as long as it's under two hundred thousand. Well, it's two thirty. Fuck. It's like okay. Fuck it. Oh, do it. It's like oh, okay. If I'm spending two hundred anyway, then what the <laughs> yeah. fuck's another thirty? Like this is where we're at. Is this is why we're doomed as human beings? Yes. <laughs> Like, um, I don't know. I don't know if you have access to your Twitter right now. Hey, you know, but I sent you this video because I had uh, spaced and forgot to send it to you just to check it out for our last portion of the Goose or Goose segment on episode 70 here. But it is uh, we're animal themed. <laughs> we're animal lovers as there is a, a Twitter video here of monkeys taking over a resort. And uh, bear with me here. Hey, you know, Mahabalashar, India during lockdown. And it's goddamn hilarious as the monkeys just took over the pool and are doing cannonballs off of a fucking umbrella into the pool. I don't know. I don't know about you, but this is where I want a vacation. Yeah. Fuck this. I'll go. Like, I'll go fucking cannonballing with the monkeys of India. Yep. As long as you don't get AIDS. <laughs> <laughs> you come back like like what? How, like how did you get that? Like I didn't know you were. You know. Like no, I was just swimming with monkeys in India. Swimming with monkeys? I don't know. Whatever. Well, one of them jumped on my head off an umbrella and clawed the shit out of me. <laughs> and that, of course, that's from one of my favorite uh, Twitter pages, fucking at Rex Chapman, former NBA guard. <laughs> yeah. Just nothing to do all day watching weird Twitter videos like, ha, 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 monkeys taking over a resort in Mahalabashar. Like, Good <laughs> job, Rex. I was there in 93. Yeah. Like, I dunked for them people. But as I, as I say to my brother from another mother, hate y'all between Shawn Michaels, super kicking mugs to a $230,000 giant squid statue in Japan to a politician thinking we're the most beautiful planet on our own planet, a Kentucky Derber win, winner being on steroids and how the hell don't the Hulk's pants rip? All I can say to hate y'all is wait, goofs. Nope. Our gaze. And, no, and, I'm waiting. And, and and Rex Chapman Duncan for the the folks of India in ninety <laughs> yes for them folks <laughs> for them we folks. must say goofs are gifts oh Christ that's it for us here on episode seventy uh, thank you for listening please listen next week the J I hear you revving it up brother revving it up like a Kentucky Derby winner on steroids hey y'all. <laughs> It was a great, uh, nice, even number 70 episode here after the 69th extravaganza. We're rolling along in the world of what's real. We're hoping anybody hearing our voices and joining us are, are having fun and being entertained within, as we keep saying, the current pandemic state and the craziness of the world, trying to have some fun sometime of the week. So we appreciate you if you're hearing us right now. We're having a blast. Always the shout out to the wizard behind the boards. Great job, Cam. Always keep it up. Love the show. To my brother from another, hey, you we love we love doing this and it's a blast, man. Love it. As we always say, I'll take the lead. Hey, you know, to all our peeps out there, everyone, stay safe, stay healthy. You'll hear the J next week. So that is it for us here on episode 70. Of course, shout out to the J. Thanks for sitting down with me here each and every week as we do. There's nobody else I'd rather do it with, brother. Also, shout out to the wizard behind the boards, Cam, for all the hard works he put into the show. Thank you very much, because we all know that nobody beats the whiz so that is it for us this week guys we will hope to see you here on the show next week for episode 71 it's going to be a blast uh but until then stay safe stay healthy we'll see you right here next week on the what's real podcast